Big Dumb Movie is a comedic podcast that often contains obscene language and outlandish commentary. Listener discretion is advised. Hello and welcome to Big Dumb Movie, where we discuss movies of the Big Dumb variety. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm joined today by Steve. Whoa! Wait, nobody, nobody knows Joey Lawrence references anymore. I probably should have gone with a different opening. Whatever. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> and joining us for the first time ever, a very special guest to Big Dumb Movie, Bartholomew Comstocking. Hello. <laughs> Flattering. <laughs> Flattering. That's my real name. <laughs> now, Bartholomew here is actually the identical twin brother of Alan. And for those diehard listeners that used to listen to the old episodes know that Alan was on this podcast. Unfortunately, he died in Miami. But his twin brother is here, and he has agreed to let us call him Alan in memory of his dead brother. Thank you, Alan, I should call you, right? Yeah, you're welcome. How is everyone? It was pretty sad when he died. (laughs) Yeah, how did he die? I know Uh, that Steve was discovered near the body, but maybe you can enlighten us. How did he die? Well, I don't want to get too into it, but it was a mixture of cocaine and jet skis. (laughs) Oh my God. The ultimate combo. (laughs) Little H2O racing, you know. (laughs) You know, he liked to live a a fast-paced lifestyle. That's true. He was a big fan of uh, Tokyo Drift and other Fast and Furious movies, probably. I don't know for sure. It was a very 80s-style ending, I I heard. You know, there were Ray-Bans. The the jet skis were brightly colored. What's the name of those sunglasses where they're, they're like, multicolored? Like, the lenses are multicolored? um, Yeah, we were just talking about these. They, uh, crap. He was probably wearing those. Yeah, whatever definitely. they're called. Like, yeah. like, like Macho Man Randy Savage <laughs> yeah, style. <exactly. laughs> like people anyway. forget, jet skis are dangerous. It's good to have you both here, Alan. I'll call you and Steve. Ahoy! We're here to discuss a movie that the three of us have actually talked about in the past. It's called The Last Samurai. It's a 2003 movie. Wait, what? I watched The Last Airbender. Oh, so you watched the better movie? <laughs> That's rough. All right. No, I want rough, Last buddy. Samurai. That's a Last Airbender meme. Actually, you guys know that Zuko meme. That's rough, buddy. <laughs> but no, I actually did watch the Last Samurai. Have you ever seen the Last Airbender, Alan? I did not. Uh, I know of the anime, but I never got into it, and I never watched the movie. And I heard the movie was a total disaster. It's a Shyamalan movie, so it's one you'd like. But there's no Jaden Smith. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> Don't ever apologize for that. (laughs) So, of course, we're talking about The Last Samurai, and we can't talk about this movie without bringing up Tom Cruise. You know, it's not just not just me. It's you. It's everyone out there kind of rereading KSW and looking at what needs to be done and saying, "Okay, am I going to do it or am I not going to do it? Period. And am I going to look at that guy or am I too afraid because I have my own out ethics to put in someone else's ethics? And that's all it comes down to. Because I won't hesitate to put ethics in on someone else, you know. Because I put it ruthlessly in on myself. (laughs) (laughs) Who was excellent in this movie. One of his better roles. Better roles, okay. We'll see if uh, we all agree with that standpoint. I would say, let me go one step further and say it's one of his best roles. I will say that. I'll say it's one of the best roles ever of any actor. (laughs) Steve, respond. 
with you guys just trying to castrate my intellect or what? <laughs> yeah. Like I feel defenestrated. Um look, he was he was good in it. I mean, as far as as he could be. And it, look, I and I'll admit up front, he's actually been in a lot of really good movies. He really has. And he's been very good in a lot of them. Like, I was trying to isolate in my head what my favorite is, and I realized there there were a few of his movies that really are among my just my absolute favorite movies. But uh this I wouldn't I wouldn't pick this out as being one of his best. I, I Well, what are some of the ones that you consider <laughs> to be upper tier? I mean, if we're talking really at like at an acting level, my pick for best of the best from him is the color of money with Paul Newman. That is just an absolutely brilliant fucking movie. Scorsese directed it. It was a sequel to a brilliant movie. It's one of the few instances of the sequel being at least as good, if not better, than the original. But, you know, he was also very good in The Outsiders really early in his career. He was in Legend, Ridley Scott's Legend, which I love. Cocktail's a fun movie. Rain Man, he was obviously very good in. Born on the Fourth of July. Minority Report? See, that's another one I'd say. I don't dislike the movie, but I wouldn't count that as being... When you compare it to like like the color of money or Rain Man or Born it's, on the Fourth of it's July, interesting, Steve, that you put you threw Cocktail in there so casually. Well, I I think Cocktail is one of his more iconic parts, but I wouldn't say that it's on the same level for him as an actor as like as Color of Money was. No, I think it's a fun movie though, okay. in its own right. That's that's only my only argument. I like Days of Thunder. I feel the same way about. It. I think Days of Thunder is entertaining, but I wouldn't I wouldn't rank it up there as being like one of the best. Like, from a cinematic standpoint, movies. He was in Far and Away with his wife at the time, Nicole Kidman. That movie is incredible. Shot on 70mm by Ron Howard. It's a big movie. Even if you don't like the movie overall, the production itself is incredible. I want to say a couple before Steve just literally names off every Tom Cruise movie on IMDb. Except he forgot one. Go. Collateral. Collateral's a real good movie. Collateral. I hadn't gotten that far in his resume yet, but yeah. He's He's a good villain in that movie. He doesn't normally play a villain, obviously, but he's so, like intense in that movie and he is he he moves so smoothly as like an assassin like you know with yeah. the, the gunplay aspect he he's very committed in that regard we'll talk about it more he, he he trained a lot for that in the same way he trained for this and i'll get into the detail when we get there but yeah and he's i think he's very committed to his parts and he does all very famously does all his own stunts it's hard to talk too much shit about a guy who really has been in this many good films. Even even his worst movies mostly aren't really that bad. He's arguably the best actor, like, ever. One of the best. Whoa, not even close. I would say. Not even close. I would say he's arguably is. How much? Alan how many recently joined the Church of Scientology. <laughs> yeah. Well, okay. John Travolta paid him to say this. Despite all the Scientology stuff, <laughs> as everyone knows, he's crazy a little. No, there's a. But there's... if you look at just the movies, like you named off how many movies that were all insane hits and still classics. Look, Adam Sandler's been in a bunch of huge hits too. He, and he's a very good actor but in not, his own right too. Not when in you, the when same you put him in the movies. right place, all but he also did fucking name. Jack and Jill. You know. Are you saying like, that Tom Cruise is like? Like an Adam Sandler? Like, are you saying they're equivalent? No, because Adam Sandler's worst movies are way worse than Tom Cruise's. Yeah, well, that, that's worse. what I'm saying. But, so, but he has how many? <laughs> but good that doesn't too. make him one of the best act yeah. li- living or, or ever actors in the world. It means he's a good actor who's had some very good performances in a in a substantial list of really good movies. And I will concede all of that. But that's you put him up there with with Brando or Philip Seymour Hoffman or Daniel Day-Lewis. I'm sorry, he's just he's not he's not there. He doesn't he's have three there. names, Alan. You got to have three names to be respected. Brando only had two. But yeah, he's had a wide True. variety of roles, so he can play 
like in Collateral, he was the villain, which yeah. he did excellent. In he's scary um, in that movie at times. Yeah, yeah other movies. He's, he's a very Mission flexible. Impossible. He's mostly an action star, I would say. I, I, but like, yeah. think about this Magnolia, right? It's just a human role. Like he's not doing things physically in that movie. Everything with him is communication. It's him talking to someone. And it's just the Tom Cruise intensity. Plus, he has a big See, personality but, in that movie, in that particular that's character. That's my problem with that. Like, I like that part for him, but I feel like he works well in it because that's just him. It's a very, like, caricaturized version, version of, of him. himself. Yeah. yeah, which is, so it's like, it's a good movie. It's a good part. And he, like, he's a good actor. I just, like, I would call him upper tier. There's a lot of actors in Hollywood who are way worse than him. There's a lot of actors. But, I mean, if you if you look at any... I mean, no, we, I know we can always fall on, like, who are the so-called experts and does their opinion only matter and blah, blah, blah. But you look up any, any list, any opinion on the greatest actors of all time, I don't think his name appears on any of them. Any of them. And it's not to say that he's not a very good actor, but there's, there's levels to it. I mean, I don't know. We forgot to mention Tropic Thunder, where he <laughs> plays the greasy agent. Yeah. I think yeah. people find that one to be hit or miss. Like I love that one. I, I actually did like it, like his role in that. But some people look at it and it's like, okay, like he's clearly trying to do something else. I've heard counters to like to that particular role, but I think it's cool. A couple more that I want to talk about. Well, one more in particular, because it's just one of my favorite movies as well, is Interview with the Vampire. your coffin, my love. Enjoy it. Most of us never get to know what it feels like. Why do you do this? I like to do it. I enjoy it. Take your receipts, taste pure things. Kill them swiftly if you will, but do it, for do not doubt, you are a killer, Louis. I think he has so much range in Interview with the Vampire. He is amazing in that movie. And there's a lot of like powerhouse actors in that movie. He's obviously with Brad Pitt and then young Kirsten Dunst, who was like really making a name for herself. Well, particularly in that movie. She was the runaway. That's not to say anyone else was bad, but oh my God. I and mean, she's never been that intense at any other point in her career. For a girl that age to pull that part off, she was really incredible. She was. Yeah, absolutely. But Tom Cruise blows my mind in that movie. Like he is so unlike the Tom Cruise we know today. And he's just, he's having fun and he's being crazy. And he really gets to like, I think, showcase his range. He's, he's a very broken, I would say man, but he's a vampire. He's a very broken vampire that's like still trying to salvage some like bits of, of fun and happiness and bring a little bit of joy to his life. And he's always trying to do it through other people. And he's yeah. never really successful. He is a very good actor. I'm not denying that. He's a very good... He's, and again, he's been in, I, I would say, probably 20 really good movies. I, there's a couple, and there are two I want to mention really quick, because I think they often get forgotten in conversations about him, are Oblivion and Live, Die, Repeat. I, I think those two are actually superb. They're two of the best sci-fi movies in their own regard, right, of the last 25 years or so. I, I really enjoyed both of those. He was really good in both of those. Um, That's... Sorry. Oh, I was just going to end it by saying Oblivion, especially. I think more people remember Live, Die, Repeat, but Oblivion seemed to go mostly under the radar, and people have like forgotten he was even in it. I forget about that movie all the time. Yeah, it's a really good movie. That's funny you mentioned those movies because we didn't mention War of the Worlds, which you isn't particularly what? the best movie, but it, it was always it was a fun movie. Right? I just it was a good movie. No, you're right. You know, you are right. You're right. I was remiss in Man War on of the Worlds, and I defend that movie. A lot of people. Yeah. 
for whatever reason, really shit hard on that movie. And I think that movie did more right than it did wrong. It's not to say that it's perfect, but there are some... The moment when the crowd is trying to get him and the kids out of the car is one of the most intense scenes I've ever seen in a film. That's like the scariest moment in the movie. Yeah, it's amazing. I think they did a really good job of that movie. I mean that sincerely. So that was always a good one. I liked that one. That's an interesting thought, actually, that like these aliens are showing up. They're disintegrating people. They're capturing people. They have these like giant fucking scary squid robots. But the scariest moment is when the people turn on you. Yes. Yeah, that's part of what I love about that film. It's about an alien invasion, but it's it's as much about the way the people around them are reacting to it as it is about the aliens. And I think that's brilliant. Hell yeah. Yeah. So The Last Samurai, to kind of take us back on track. (laughs) I just want to say right off the bat that I have multiple connections to this movie. There's three things specifically that like connect me to the movie at large. One, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> the character in the movie Nathan, Tom Cruise's character is an alcoholic. That's true. Two, I'm a Japanese American. And this is a movie that's mostly set in Japan about Japanese culture. I like that. Three, I'm a former Scientologist. And as we all know, Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. You don't hear the name Tom Cruise without hearing Scientology be tossed around. Isn't that kind of funny, actually? I'm, I'm just thinking about that. Whenever someone says something about Tom Cruise, they always say something about Scientology. You'd be like, yeah, so- he's a crazy Scientologist, but that movie was pretty good. Right? Yeah, that association is powerful. And, I mean, it's amazing. You know better than I do how many, not all of them at his level, of course, but how many people you see on TV and in films that are and that that association with them isn't necessarily there. It, it, it's him and I think secondarily Travolta are the two people that get it most associated with them. But yeah. Well, yeah. That's definitely on purpose by yeah. Scientology because they get the exposure. Oh, yeah, that's absolutely. Definitely on purpose. Well, when you take that much of your biggest patron's money, you want him to make as much of it as you can. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, Scientology as a entity... And I guess I really mean the the person that runs it. His name's David Miscavige. They really put Tom Cruise on front street. Like, he's their poster boy. Oh, yeah. They, you know, they, they want people to see celebrities, movie stars, yeah. not even just celebrities. Like, you know, what is Tom Cruise? Like, one of the top 20 movie stars, oh, whether absolutely. or not you respect his acting. He's, he's a big, big name. No argument. Absolute A-list. One of the biggest in the history of the film industry. No argument. Absolutely. So the fact that he's a Scientologist is a big thing for them, and they really really use that to their advantage. Travolta has kind of like faded into obscurity in terms Again. of in terms of acting <laughs> and in terms of Scientology. And if you believe the rumors, which you guys don't know anything about probably, but he's been trying to leave is what some people say, Scientology. Oh and, no, I hadn't heard that part. And it's not an easy thing to leave Scientology. Well, and- no, I mean, I, I, from what I've heard, and it's all second and third hand, and some of it from documentaries, and you might argue that the people who made them made them in their own interest, fine. But I've heard that they will literally just ruin your life. Like There so- are things that they will do that uh, definitely can ruin your life. But mostly it has to do with being so embedded in Scientology yeah. that you have really no option to leave. Right, like right. You're, you have nothing if you leave. So that's one of the positions that some people have found themselves in, according to their story. It's brilliant in a messed up 
evil way on the part of the people who constructed this pyramid. I mean, you make these people prisoners to it, so even if they've wisen up to what's going on, they can't go anywhere. They have a really like interesting thing they built into their doctrine as well. They, they basically say that if anyone tries to leave Scientology, that means that they've committed crimes against the Church of Scientology, yeah. and that means that they're an enemy of Scientology. Right. And there's a, there's a policy in Scientology called fair game. Where it basically says you can do anything you want to destroy an enemy of Scientology. <laughs> so they have this thing built in that basically like you can join us, but if you try to leave, you're a piece of shit. This is Old Testament shit that most of the Abrahamic religions sort of ignore now. Or like these people, if they're outside your religious group, you can basically do whatever you want to them because they're not human anymore. There's multiple Abrahamic religions that that have that somewhere in their doctrine. They just none of them well. For the most part, anyway, don't don't follow it anymore. I was just going to say that. What a coincidence that they're not the only one that that does that. It, a lot of the other religions do similar yeah. things like that, where you can never leave, or you're like you said, it's it's at least they, they do similar right? stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know, and and uh, it's 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 a very interesting organization. I don't want to get sued. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like. We can talk more about Scientology as we go on, maybe. For now, Steve, yes. I do have a question for you. Sir. How the hell was this movie made? <laughs> All right. So, look, I myself have some pretty mixed feelings about this film. Some positive, but some less than. And I do not own a copy of it on home video because I've never wanted to. And I realized when I looked it up that the most recent release does have a commentary from the director and some background. So anyone who's really interested might want to rent or purchase that because I did not go through it. I just gleaned what I could from elsewhere. But from what I understand, a writer named John John Logan wrote an original screenplay, what the industry would refer to as a spec script called The Last, uh, uh, Last Samurai. Logan has written some other stuff. He wrote a football movie uh, called Any Given Sunday. He wrote Gladiator for Ridley Scott. The remake of The Time Machine with Guy Pearce, Star Trek Nemesis, The Aviator, Tim Burton's version of Sweeney Todd, um, some of the uh, James Bond movies, etc. He wrote Star Trek Nemesis? Mm -hmm. Or was at least involved in the writing of it, yeah. Mm. Um, Not a good movie, Star Trek Nemesis. No, this guy's had a weirdly mixed career. There's a couple in there like The Aviator and Sweeney Todd that are really good, and there's a few others on his resume that are not so great. I know Alan has not seen Star Trek Nemesis, so I'm going to tell Alan. (laughs) I know Steve probably already knows this. There's a funny plot with Star Trek Nemesis. You know Captain Picard, right, Alan? Patrick Stewart, bald dude. He's like the quintessential Star Trek captain. He's like very by the book. The man of honor. (laughs) Yeah. Discipline. The man of discipline, goddammit. Star Trek Nemesis is he has to fight his greatest adversary himself. (laughs) It turns out he was cloned. And there's a clone of him that was raised in hardship and is basically evil. And he's bald as well. But do you know who plays this clone? Who would play a clone of Captain Picard? Who's a good casting for that, Alan? Himself? Tom Hardy, of course. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, I remember this now. <laughs> like, even John Malkovich would have been a closer look than that. Yes, it's so like, funny to see, like, a ball, like, his head is bit down, Tom Hardy. Tom like, Hardy. He's supposed to be Picard. Picard sees him and recognizes him, and he's, like, in shock. But the audience, you don't know who the fuck it is. You're like, okay, who, who is it? It was early in his career. Yeah, it, yeah he's very young. Anyway, sorry to derail. No, no, no. I love Star Trek. Go ahead, Steve. Absolutely. Anyway, so Logan, this guy John Logan wrote a spec screenplay titled The Last Samurai. I I, I discovered, even I was a little guilty of this while researching, 
Contrary to the popular misconception, when he chose the title for this script, he was not referring to Tom Cruise's character. He was also not referring to Ken Watanabe's character, both of whom we'll discuss shortly. That is a big misconception. Most yeah. people see the poster. It has Tom Cruise's fucking it. face. Yes. It says The Last Samurai, and people are like, this guy is, is The, the last, last Samurai? samurai? What? Right? But it, Samurai is plural. It is. It's samurai the last is both Samurai, in a sense, like, of that people. The yes. last Samurai. Exactly. Right. 100% Samurai is both plural and singular without adding an S. So, so yeah. it's not like The Last Jedi, where it is singular. Right. This is the last samurais. <laughs> Even though that movie arguably should have been the last Seth convert. But whatever. I mean, sort of. Sith by inheritance? I don't know. That's arguable. Did you say last Seth convert? Sith? Sith? Seth. I, oh, no, last Seth, the last Seth. Seth Green? The last Seth Green. <laughs> I think that's a small detail, but important to press upon. Because that's... It is. That was a big misconception. It's like you said, when the poster is just basically him. Right. <laughs> and it says the last samurai. Everyone immediately thinks the same thing. Like, how is Tom Cruise going to play the last samurai, the white guy? So, yeah, it is a collective term. Um, the background from there, for me, gets a little bit murky just for a second because Logan wrote this script. John Logan wrote this script. But he apparently adapted it from a, an idea that came from a, a writer, director, producer named Vincent Ward. Vincent Ward's not super well-known to Americans. If any American knew who he was, more than likely it would be because of a movie with Robin Williams called What Dreams May Come, which he directed. I know that movie. Yeah, so that, that's that one of the bigger, one most Americans would at least be passingly aware of, at least if you were alive when it came out. I might be the only person that likes that movie in the world. I don't dislike it. I, it's it's the production design. It, we should do that movie sometimes. That's a conversation. Anyway, Ward also has done a whole bunch of other stuff. He he actually was an early contributor during early drafts to Alien 3 during the mess of that production before he walked away to do other things. So at some point, Vincent Ward apparently had this idea, and then John Logan took it, turned it into a script. I don't know much more about that end of it than that. Uh, so they uh, they move along with this script written by John L Logan. Vincent Ward eventually became executive producer on the script on the, the movie. It took him four years to get it from script to production. I don't really know exactly why, aside from I think they had trouble. It's implied in some of what I found that they had trouble finding a director. He apparently approached Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Weir, another very famous director, before he landed on Edward Zwick. Zwick has worked in both film and TV. He's actually directed some really good movies, a Civil War film called Glory, Legends of the Fall with Brad Pitt, uh, Blood Diamond with Leo DiCaprio. Wait, I love Zwick, Blood Diamond. That's Zwick directed Glory? Or he, he, or was, or I may be off on that. He was either directed or was a story contributor to it. I, I know he was involved in the production. There are some scenes that are very similar, similar. to Glory. In yes, this. and that's there's a lot of criticism of that online that they repeated themselves with some of the Glory stuff here. Dude, Glory took place like five years before this movie. Yeah. And like... It, what was the Civil War? Like 1860? Yeah, the this, American Civil War, yeah. So this movie is like... Just a few years 1867. Later. 1867. Or no, you're right. No, 1876. With surprise, surprise, a white guy who has no business being there helping the Chinese defend the Great Wall. Is that the one um, with Matt Damon? Yes, exactly. Now, okay, 
you can't even compare that to this one. That one is a complete joke. There's I mean, some there's there's like there's like made. monsters in that one. It's and way shit. worse. I will concede so that. That's out not front. that's like a joke movie. It is. It's more of a joke than this is. But I'm gonna go with Corey too. There's 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 some thematic. We'll talk about it. There's a okay. little bit of Jesus Christ. I have force power. White guy superhero bit in this. But yeah, um, I disagree. But okay, I'm gonna point out specific moments. So okay. We'll see. We'll see. Okay. But. Uh, um, but this guy's also done some real crap, like the Great Wall. He also did uh, uh, the Siege with uh, Seagal. Thing he did one of the he did a sequel to the Jack Reacher movie that Tom Cruise had been in. So this guy's got a pretty mixed career. He also though was one of the co-creators of a show called Thirty Something, which was hugely popular for a couple of years in the late '80s. And he um, he was an executive producer on My So Called Life, which is the TV show that launched Claire Danes' career. Um, anyway, he ends up. Uh, directing this there's a lot of background to where the story ideas were taken from some people have pointed toward a French army captain named Jules Brunet who fought in a war in Japan alongside samurai and wrote stories about it Katsumoto Watanabe's character was reportedly inspired by a real life samurai named Saigo Takamori uh, who led a rebellion against the emperor after having been a, a field marshal in the imperial army there's there's some overlap between the final battle in this and a real battle called the Satsuma Rebellion. At the same time, I think it's important to point out virtually none of this is historically accurate. The U.S. had almost no actual presence there at the time. We did sell little weapons, but they got most of their military training from the Prussians. They were buying other weapons from the Portuguese. The only real documented European or, or white people fighting alongside them were a few French people on a couple of occasions for the most part. So what they really did was take a handful of different samurai and political events that did sort of roughly happen around this actual time in history overlapping with Emperor Meiji being in power, and they kind of crammed them all into a story that, that was otherwise totally fictionalized. But, uh, but based off true events. Quasi, sort of. <laughs> so this is not well, one of those based on a true story movies. I would not say really. based this on is... a true story on the history, not any one specific event. Well, but I mean, the history of the samurai, that all really happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Algren's character is totally fictional. This is more That's like... That's what I mean. Yeah, this yeah. is more like they took, they took several real-life samurai and events involving samurai during this area and sort of put them in a blender and then took what they got out of that blender and fictionalized it even further and made Tom Cruise like made the Nathan Algren character involved. yeah so there's some elements of real history there but no this is not a based on a true story there was no Algren and all that no no yeah. and the Americans never had that kind of presence there we never there was never any American cavalry fighting alongside either either side of any of those fights. Okay. Well, yeah. there couldn't have been because they were they were closed off till I don't know how long. Well, this or is they actually historically after that. closed. Or when did they open? After um uh Commodore Perry blew his cannons out at the port. Well, that was up. not that much earlier, was it? Or? No, no. The the big deal here and that's why they chose this era is it, Meiji became emperor in the 1860s or 1870s and he immediately wanted to start westernizing the country. It's and another that's part thing, of the movie. A, yeah, but that's yeah. another thing that's really wrong here. They make him out to be this impotent, weak-willed, silent-voiced child who won't even speak up amongst his own advisors. And the reality was no one was manipulating him. It was his idea to westernize the country. Most of what he did was actually very well received by the larger public. He's credited in Japanese history as being the guy that brought Japan out of the old way. When he 
who took power. The emperor hardly had any real power. The country was still mostly run by a shogun and daimyo. And the samurai. And the samurai. And yeah, I, so it, like this makes him out to be this this kid who didn't know what he was doing. And the reality is he was the intellectual driving force behind making it happen. Steve, I, you seem well, like the kind of guy that knows a lot about samurai. Yeah, a bit anyway. I don't pretend to be like like a real historian, but yeah. You come off as one. I know a little bit too because I saw a movie called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3. <laughs> Some people call it Turtles in Time, but that's actually not the correct subtitle that was added in the 2000s to the DVD. There actually is a Super Nintendo game called Turtles in Time. It was one of the best TMNT games. Yes. Really good. I think that's where the conflation arises. Right. But yeah, Steve, I hope you can shed some more samurai expertise as we go through it. Are we ready to go through it? Yeah, we can go through it. That's about all the background that's really worth sharing anyway, to be honest. I was hoping Alan... Hmm. could kick us off with how this movie begins. It's almost like a a quick prophecy, and then we meet our main character, the prophesized white savior himself, Nathan. I'm going to have to comment about this opening, but I'm going to let Alan talk first. The opening where he's at the, the trade show, and he's working for the Winchester company? Yes. There's actually a little bit before that, I'm sorry. I don't want to take away your time no, to no, speak, what, though. What's before that? There's Is a, that when like, he sees the tiger? Sort of. There's like 30 seconds before that where it's just shots of the Sea of Japan and you hear, now I'm blanking on his name, the English guy who works as the translator for them, Graham. Graham. You hear his voice and he's describing what is supposed to be the Japanese. Oh, and creation. how the islands were made? Yeah, and, and they they immediately fuck it. What he says is, at least to my knowledge, and if somebody knows better and can correct me, that's that fine. The sword but- was dipped. Yeah, in the water. And he, yeah, he only got it part right. There's a book called the Kojiki. It's a collection of ancient Japanese myths and stories, including a lot of the Shinto stories, including the, Jap- the Shinto creation myth. It's one of only two sources that actually goes back far enough to be reliable. I think there's another source that may contradict it slightly, but in the Kojiki, what it says is these two twins, a brother and sister, they were part of the seventh generation of gods, They were told by the older gods to go down to earth because it was just a primordial soup of crust and ocean. Go down to earth, sit on a cloud, create something. And the two of them take this bejeweled uh, spear. It would have been a naginata, a long, long spear with a curved tip. And this one had jewels all over it. And they dip it into the ocean. And when, when he's pulling the spear out of the ocean, droplets of water fall off and form one island. And the two of them then go down to that island. And from there... They, they form all the other islands of Japan, some of which are children that they didn't want to keep and who they cast off into the ocean. That's, that's the myth. What he says is something about a, a sword with a coral blade, and I'm like, I've never heard this before. I don't know. I've, I've read dozens of books about this. I've never heard this version of the story. But not a historian, Steve. Not a historian. <laughs> yeah. To, to anyway. be fair, though, I mean, isn't that kind of the point of myths? That How can you... I mean... There is a right one, but how can you really get that right if they're all just myths, you know? Well, I mean, I take the point you're making, but, like, if there's a written version of the myth that everyone accepts as the story we go with, then why invent a different version of it? You know what I mean? No, okay, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, but it starts with that. It starts with how supposedly Japan was made. But I was thinking of the start when we see Nathan. It's 1876, I believe, is the year. And he's uh, backstage at a show, and immediately you get the sense he's not a happy person. He's obviously very bitter in his actions and the way he moves and speaks, and you find out very shortly that he works for the Winchester Company, 
and he's showing off one of their repeating firearms, which there's a good scene in the beginning. He's showing off one the, I don't know the exact model. There were several models, but it was one of the earliest repeating weapons that could fire like cartridges. And there's a scene where he's showing it off and he makes a comment that this is the gun that's winning the West. And it's known now as the gun that won the West. But in the movie, he says winning. Right. It's almost like he's doing a live action commercial. Yeah. For like a, like an in-person commercial, right? There's no TVs, obviously. So, you know, when they do their like sales demonstrations, events, they open like a booth and they, you know, they have a speaker come out. They have a, a minor celebrity, maybe even a major celebrity, Algren, come out and say like how good this fucking gun is. It's well, like because he was a former soldier. Yeah. And, uh, yeah he's showing like- off the gun. It's like a roadshow, sales roadshow. It's it's very interesting. I like that part. And of you American find out history. that's how he makes his living, or right. makes some money off that. And you're right. They've got the little like it's like a a, a light shadow. What do you call that? Like where you, they they it's really puppets, but they project light against them, so you get the shadows on the wall or whatever. They got something in the background supposed to show like movement and people using the guns and Algren's talking about how they use the gun to defend the land from the savage natives and blah blah blah. Yeah. yeah, but he knows that's not true. <clears throat> no, yeah, it's not true. He he clearly like he's an alcoholic. He's a drinker, but he has like a like a traumatic past. You know, PTSD. He, he has like PTSD or at least major regrets that right. are impacting his current state of life. There's a moment if you're listening while he's sitting backstage drinking, where the guy who's announcing him mentions that they're celebrating the nation's centennial. So that's how you know it's 1876. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, ladies and gents, is the gun that's winning the West. By many's a time, I found myself surrounded by a swarm of angry hostiles with nothing but this rifle between me and a certain and gruesome death. But let me tell you, folks, the Red Man is a fearsome enemy. And if he'd have had his way, why, this scalp of mine would be long gone. And there'd be a balder man standing before you today. <laughs> like those poor bastards out there on the little bighorn. Body strip bear. Mutilated. Left to rot in the sun. This, ladies and gentlemen, the 73 lever action. Trapper. Seven shot capacity, accurate. 400 yards, one round per second. Now, son, have you ever seen what this could do to a man? This would blow a hole in your daddy six inches wide. That's right, Missy this beauty you could kill yourself five six seven braves without ever having to reload note the patented loading port and the smooth cocking action but steve he doesn't continue this job he is offered a new job from a guy called bagley who's tony goldwyn which you may remember was the villain in ghost yes need that money and I want it tonight at 11 o'clock. If that psychic lady does not bring it here, Molly is dead, okay? Carl, who are you talking to? 
Yes. Well, he doesn't see Goldwyn first. Uh, uh, he sees uh, an old, a Scottish man whose character name I've forgotten. Zeb. Um, Zeb, who uh, who they who had fought with him. And there's a moment where Il Duce. Yeah. Yeah. The boondock Saints. That's <laughs> right. You know, and they talk about having fought under Custer, which gives you a little clue as to what Nathan used to do. And he takes Nathan to see Bagley, who's Goldwyn, Tony Goldwyn. And uh, Goldwyn's been in a lot of movies, lots and lots of movies, still working now. And uh, who's Lieutenant Bagley or Captain Bagley, whatever's Bagley's his character. Colonel, I think. Colonel, yeah. Mm-hmm. And Bagley's sitting there with these two Japanese diplomats. Omura. Omura, yeah. And whoever Omura's assistant is the name I've just forgotten. Yeah. And uh, Omura's like like the the main ambassador to the Emperor of Japan, and and Bagley immediately makes himself out to be a racist douchebag. The first thing he tells Nathan about the Japanese people is that they've suddenly gotten a mind to civilize themselves or become a civilized country. It's like motherfucker, these people were civilized where you, while Europeans were still wearing diapers. Like, but anyway, well that comes up repeatedly. But he, I yeah. don't remember that character well. The character, I thought he did a good job, like Steve said, of being the bad guy. You yeah, immediately hate him, or like he's he's, just he's pretty hateable in movies. Like yeah. he's he's a good actor because of that. I think he tends to play that type of guy more often than not because it just fits him so well. Like he was especially that type as the the banker in um in Ghost. God, else what else did he do that in? Like I know it was something else, but. Yeah, he's been in a lot of... Oh, he, The Sixth Day with Schwarzenegger. He was a, the douchey guy that owned the cloning company. Oh, my God. Yeah. He, he has, like, the fucked up clone at the yeah. end, and he's all, like, fucked up, and he's right. like, yeah, And dude. he wants it, he, like, kills it, and yeah, <laughs> that's it. He, he does like, that. aren't one. you even going to wait for me to die? <laughs> right. Would you? Would you, right? Yeah. Oh, uh, that's, like, yeah, that, that's probably my favorite scene in that whole movie. That movie sucks. <laughs> There's like a creepy doll in the, Okay, we'll talk about the it doll. later. <laughs> yes. Anyway. There's some good foreshadowing here because I think it's this scene where they all meet and he basically offers him a job to train the Japanese to build up their military. That's they, right. They offer him some exorbitant amount of money, which is funny because in 1876, oh. I believe it's like $400 a month or something which would Not have been a huge now. amount of money back yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Insane. But I wanted to mention before Nathan leaves, he's he's we mentioned he's been drinking backstage. He's drunk off his ass when he gets on stage. He he goes on a rant. He then fires above the heads of the crowd, scares everybody in the fucking oh, yeah. audience. And during the end of his rant, he shoots out uh, an instrument called the calliope, which I'm fascinated with. I love these things since I was a kid. It's it's a steam powered instrument. They made it make from metal tubes. It works a lot like a pipe organ. And they, they have different metal tubes and they force steam through it. And depending on which tube it goes through when, you get different sounds. And I always thought they were really neat and they still get traipsed out sometimes at like old timey fairs and stuff. But Nathan shoots it and then makes a comment about wishing for better mechanical entertainment, which I thought was very funny. <laughs> But yeah, but then then after that, yeah, he gets taken to Bagley. And Alan's correct. Yeah, he gets told by Bagley, basically, we want you to go to Japan and help us train a modern Japanese army. For 400 bucks a month, which is insane at the time. Right. Whatever they offer him. I believe the city was making 25 working the show. Yeah. So, but there's a great, there's a great foreshadowing in the same character that he's like, he's easily hateable. He tells him, I think very early in the beginning where he'd kill him for free. Nathan, I did what I was ordered to do out there. 
And I have no remorse. So what do you say we put the past behind us? Do you want me to kill Jappos? I'll kill Jappos. I'm not asking you to kill anybody. You want me to kill the enemies of Jappos? I'll kill the enemies of Jappos. Rebs or Sue or Cheyenne. For 500 bucks a month, I'll kill whoever you want. But keep one thing in mind. I'd happily kill you for free. So Nathan is basically shipped off to Japan to train their soldiers so that they can use guns. Now there's some political aspects of this movie that I don't fully understand. I'm going to be honest, Steve. Maybe you can help me out here. Right. Who is fighting who and why? So without... If we start going into the real historical influence, it'll be too many names and too much shit. I'll put it real simply. Basically what's happening here, not totally historically accurate... Japan has a relatively new emperor. He's a very young man, does not have a grip on control, and really is not running things. The people actually in charge are his advisors who are extremely pro-Western and want to evolve the country as quickly as they can. Including militarily. Including militarily, to some large degree, partly because they've found ways to enrich themselves by doing this. And the emperor, who is young and weak and won't speak up or use any of his own power, is complacent enough that he'll just let them do it. So the country is attempting to do this. They've built a huge new railroad. They're trying to modernize the army. They're buying guns in very large quantities, which a lot of people in Japan found very unsettling. This is this is gunpowder had been around for thousands of years already. The, they were familiar with it. The Chinese invented it. It was how fireworks worked. They knew what gunpowder was, but they didn't they didn't like guns. Guns were considered dishonorable. They were crude. considered crude and oafish and piggish and loud. Loud, yeah, and there's no need for them. And they, they preferred swords and bows and arrows. Nathan even comments there's a class of warrior, the samurai in Japan, who'd spent more than a thousand years crafting warfare as their way of life, and it was built around these types of weapons. These guys some of these guys could shoot a bow. That is six feet. It's six fucking feet, this thing. It's taller than an average American man. They could shoot it standing up on horseback at full speed and hit a target within inches of accuracy while they were flying past on a horse. It's insane what these guys could do. They developed what is still today regarded as being the most finely made man-made metal object in the world. In the world. No one else by hand can make a sword like that. No one. And there's something like a dozen guys left in Japan who know how to do it. It's the finest metal blade in existence. They can cut through bone. I'm not trying to be morbid or weeby about it. They're just really, this is the reality of how good these people were at what they did. So the samurai class saw what was happening in real life even. And were like, no, we don't, we don't want any of this. And it became a fight. And um, uh, that's where we get within the movies. As Nathan gets there at a time when this fight between the samurai class and, and the people who want to westernize Japan is really coming to a head. And there are groups of samurai who've decided they're going to try to disrupt it from happening. So it's essentially a samurai against the legitimate Japanese government. Yeah, which had only recently rel relatively even become the legitimate Japanese government. Because as I mentioned earlier, a few years prior to this, the Shogun and the Daimyo were running Japan. The samurai, just a few years previous to this, had been running the whole country. They, they had an arrangement. It was hundreds of years old with the emperor. It was basically, we're going to let you keep being emperor, but you don't have any actual power. The shogunate had taken power away from the emperor a long time before that. 
And this was this was the emperor taking the power back. It was a huge deal. Yeah. Steve made several points, but <laughs> um, the way I thought of it, like you just said, and what Steve explained, it was basically the the samurai versus the government. Yeah. So this was not something that happened overnight. It happened basically throughout their entire history, but it led up to this in this time period where, like Steve explained, that basically the the shogun and the samurai were in charge. So they let the, they let the emperor exist because he was a holy person or he was a divine being. So they recognized like they have to have an emperor, but he really, like Steve said, didn't really run anything and he had advisors and then it came to a head where the government decided we want to be the government and it was the government versus the samurai. And Tom Cruise is training the government soldiers. Yeah, no, I mean, this is the one aspect of the story with him that actually makes total sense. He, he'd been a member of the American military. He'd been in the cavalry. He's clearly an expert at the use of weapons. He knows military tactics very well. Um, he also knows what it's like to be, even if he disagreed with what they were doing, he knows what it's like to be on the side of the government trying to fight an embedded force that wants otherwise. So it makes sense that once they became aware of who he was, that they'd want somebody like him to come in and train their military. And it's worth noting per the discussion we were just having that at this point, some of the military themselves had been samurai. Some of the samurai accepted that this was the way things were going to go. And they, they joined the Imperial army. There's two points there. Steve's right. But I think a large majority and they mentioned were basically conscripted peasants and just normal people. So yeah, there was some samurai, but it was mostly normal people or the average citizen. Yeah. And absolutely. And even the samurai, most of them at least would never, ever have touched a gun before this. There's so. another point Steve touched on, which I think is a very important point. And I think one of the probably the more standout themes or points of the film is when Steve was talking about how for, and he mentions for a thousand years or probably longer that that's what they've been training to do. And in the scene when he's training the the new soldiers, he mentions that, that for the last thousand years, their sole occupation was war. And he knows that too, from the Indians, who are very similar in that same sense, is that for their entire history, they were survivalist war. They had horses. They had arrows. They could do similar things. And, and that's what he's saying, is that you can't underestimate that at all. Right. And I think, um, you know, Tom Cruise, Nathan, feels bad about everything that happened with the Native Americans, but accepts this job because like what else am I going to do right and the money's really good when he's on the boat there's a, a voiceover his character thinking to himself and he makes a comment about accepting the some, irony of his life yeah well he, that and then something like this is the only type of work I'm suited for because that's where he's mentally although my one issue with the way they play this part is he's got, he has these flashbacks and you find out through one of the flashbacks that what he's really most upset about is that he's got he'd gotten friendly with one particular tribe and then that tribe was blamed for raiding a cavalry camp, even though they hadn't done it. And his commanding officer, who at the time had been Bagley, commanded the unit to wipe out this tribe, even though they'd had nothing to do with the raids. And on the one hand, it's like, fine, I understand that. You're against these innocent people being killed, and that's, that's good. But the flip side to that coin is the natives were all ultimately innocent people. They weren't raiding camps to be dicks. They were raiding camps because foreigners were trying to take their land from them. None of them should have been murdered for doing that. So Nathan was apparently okay when it happened as long as they'd raided a cavalry camp first. He just didn't want it to happen when they hadn't, which is like half good, you know? Hmm. <laughs> I, never, I never got that impression. I think that's, you're right, they pointed that out specifically. Yeah. But then I also got that 
he was mostly upset about everything else as well. But I don't, yeah, think, I don't he, think it was just that one part. But he still allowed himself to participate in it too. Well, I that's think, what he's upset about because he participated. Right. In it. No, which I get, but it's like you could have deserted. The story would have been more interesting if he deserted. Like it would have been more interesting if they'd found him living in a cabin on a farm in, in Iowa or something and said, look, we'll forgive the desertion if you come to Japan and help us do this. They Instead of partaking in the massacre of that whole Yeah, tribe. I mean, that's the thing. Saying you feel bad about it after the fact is kind of like, fuck you, who cares? Like <laughs> you still murdered a bunch of people. You know, that's, why, like, that's why he's so troubled because he knows that. Yeah, but 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 who cares? Like, great. I'm not going to feel sympathetic for a guy who feels bad about murdering people after he's murdered them. So you're saying, like, but you would if he would instead of he said no and he like turned. Yeah, and, exactly. Like, rode he, off. That's the thing. He should have deserted. Like like the fact well, that he's a drunk because he feels bad about killing people doesn't garner sympathy for me. You're still. You're still a person who participated in that, a mass murder of innocent people. That's the point of the movie, and we'll talk about it, but then he decides not to help him do the same thing to the samurai. Yeah, that's but the, again, like, it's a point. half-assed redemption. Like, you you can't say I'm forgiven for murdering one group of innocent people because I sort of helped a separate group fight a different battle in a different place at a different time. That's, that's, mm-hmm. that's like, it's, it's frankly the, the problem, and I don't want to turn this into a theological conversation, but the problem I have with the idea of confession, like, you can do whatever you want as long as you apologize to a priest, it's fine. Like, I, no, sorry, you, the redemption's not that easy. Like, you don't, you don't get an okay, you're a good person now. Have you accepted Tom Cruise as your Lord <laughs> and Savior, Steve? Which is my other problem, is he's definitely made out to be Mr. Jedi Force. Like, especially that... I'll talk about it. There's a couple of moments in particular. All right. Yeah. I'm putting us on hold because I want to move the story along. The soldiers that Tom Cruise is training, Nathan is his name, they have to go to battle early. They're not ready. They fucking suck ass. Yeah. They basically, he tells them that. They basically recreate an exact scene from Glory where he's teaching a guy yes, to shoot and exactly. he can't shoot at all. Which is something other people obviously notice because I actually caught it pointed out on forums a couple times online. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's straight out of Glory. Uh, but they do have a battle with a troop of samurai that are on horseback, traditional samurai gear. They got swords. And then we're looking at, like, what appear to be, like, Civil War-era soldiers. They're Japanese, of course, but, you know, they got yeah. the similar clothing style. They got the old style of guns. The single shots. <laughs> single shots. have to reload between every shot. You got to put is... that fucking thing oh, down yeah. the front of the gun, that stick. What's that shit? I don't know anything about guns. And that, this actually, funnily oh, yeah. enough, comes up towards the end because we'll get to it. But at the end, they have the the repeating machine guns. Oh, the howitzers. Yeah. yeah. But but here they have just the muskets almost. They like don't hold the line that they're supposed to hold these soldiers. And no. they just basically get cut down like right away. Like they suck. Even though they got superior arms and I think they even have superior numbers. They're, yeah. like, so inept in battle because they're not trained enough that as soon as shit goes wrong, a lot of them just run away. Yeah, a lot of them run, and Nathan had proven it earlier when one of them couldn't get a shot fired at him. And, you know, Nathan then proved further that, like, these guys are going to have to reload these single-shot muskets in the field while other people are trying to kill. It's not like the other side's going to stop trying to kill you because you need to reload your gun. This isn't eight-year-olds playing cowboys and Indians in their yard. I mean, there's somebody who can be like, stop, I got to reload. Like Or turn-based. You're like, just dead. Right. Yeah. Like the first two fallouts where it's a turn-based combat and you right. get to reload on one turn. Exactly. You know, Take you, your time picking which area you want to attack. Yeah, go to yeah. your inventory, yeah. use an item. <laughs> Tom Cruise is out there with a 12-sided die going, wait a second, I got to see if I got to reload out of this. Like... <laughs> But that, that circles right back to what Steve mentioned earlier in the movie when he said that their sole occupation for the last thousand years has been war. And so, like you said, they easily get smashed. 
Killing is their business. Yeah, business is good. And these are the type of warriors. I mean, occasionally you get somebody who maybe goes the other direction, but these are the type of people who generally they'll 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 just ride into gunfire. Like the idea that they might get killed is something they signed up for when they were children. Literally, they're all about that. Yeah, absolutely. But you know, things aren't going well in the battle for the uh, for the Tom Cruise's side, for the Japanese government side against the samurai, except. Tom Cruise, Nathan, is a fucking badass. He is fucking these samurai up. Yeah, I mean, this is... They sort of correct it later on a little bit, but this is, like, big problem number one. I knew this was going to be big problem number one for you, Steve. There's no way he survives this fight. It's total bullshit. It's total bullshit. I don't care how magic this guy's supposed to be. He hasn't slept properly in months. He doesn't eat like a normal person. He's a third of the way drunk 24 hours of the day, if not more. He's got to be dehydrated. He's barely on his feet. He can hardly keep himself together. He's never held a sword or a spear in his life. No, he's, he's, uh, he, he doesn't have a sword. sword. Yeah, he's, they had the sabers. The Civil War this, yeah, era swords. Those sabers rarely ever got used by American soldiers in combat, did not get handled anything like a katana, and didn't cut in anywhere near the same way. He had no experience using a sword that size or with that kind of balance. He had no experience with the sword. He had no experience fighting men in armor. He got swarmed by four of them and managed to keep all of them at bay at once. The ones behind him would have been well enough trained to just put a sword in his ribs. There's no way this would have happened. There is no way this would have happened. I would be willing to stretch disbelief that maybe he picks up the spear and moves quickly enough to get one of them to trip over his own feet. I'll buy it. I'll buy it. Sometimes a guy makes a mistake. Maybe he gets one of the other one ones to One of them? But Steve, he holds seven of them like at seven bay. Seven of them at bay, right? And then he finally gets knocked over by he one does, of them. He does get hurt, and at the end of that scene, he is captured and basically... He's defeated. They were going to kill him. Yeah. So he didn't survive it. How really. many of them but, did he were yeah. going to kill him? He, he, he managed to hold off several of them until he collapsed from loss of energy. Which, no, they stabbed him a couple times. Yeah, I mean, but fine. But I mean, the, those guys, that's another bit that's a problem. Those guys don't stab you to injure you. That's not how that no. works. They, they, no, every blow is a death shot. That is absolutely 100% non-negotiable. You do not want to stab a guy on the battlefield and have him still be standing when you're done. There are 20 other guys behind you that are going to try to kill you while you're dealing with the one who's in front of you. They were trained. They're like to, raptors. Yeah, basically. One guy, they come at you from the side. <laughs> you're, you're, every shot is a kill shot. If you use your sword, the other guy has to die or you didn't use it properly. The fact that he can fight off seven of them while flinging himself around in drunken circles with a spear does not work. He would have been dead before the lead samurai gets to him. Then he finally collapses after they've nicked him a few times. And... And they were going to kill him. And, well, they were sort of going to kill him, but then he gets spared by the guy who wants the headshot, and a samurai, a seasoned samurai, who would have just picked him up, put him on his knees, and cut his head off, instead stands over him for a minute and does nothing while Tom Cruise grabs a weapon that was very obviously sitting 16 inches from him when any samurai with any training at all would have kicked that weapon away so that he couldn't do exactly what he did. And then he manages, 
after running out of energy, being beaten by seven guys, being stabbed multiple times and exhausting himself drunk, he manages to grab this long pole and while he's on his back, aim well enough with it that he gets it under the chin Be- of this samurai. Between the armor. armor. Yeah, between yeah. the plates of the armor through the guy's head. Bullshit. No, Bullshit. He, he cut the thing in half so it wasn't the full spear. He grabbed the broken part. Oh, that's true. It was a broken part. So fine. Yeah, so your whole argument has just gone to shit, All Steve. Right. Okay, and it's only there, blooming. There is a scene, because what Steve said, he's right. He didn't know how to... He's never handled a samurai sword. And it, I don't think he handles one at this point. But there is a scene later when he's training with them. And when he's holding the sword, they're training with the wooden swords. The you can tell how he's holding it like he would hold a saber. He's not holding it like they do. Well, and that's why I did say they sort of part make up for it later. The part where he's in the village with them, which we'll get to in a few minutes, they do do a much better job of representing yeah. what it would actually have when been he, like. When he's training person. with the samurai and fighting him in that scene, they're holding like they do, and you can tell he's holding but, it at a lower position. But this is another one of those scenes they very easily could have done in a manner that wouldn't have bothered me nearly so much. They could have had him just get yanked off his horse and knocked out, and when he comes back to, he's in their village. Like, as if he was more inept? Yeah, exactly. when he's on the horse and the battle is still raging, he takes out two or three samurai with his saber. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Not with a gun. With his saber while on horseback. So he's on horseback with a sword. Samurai on horseback with a sword. He wins against several of Which them. Which also is, would not, that it's factually inaccurate. Their armor was much lighter than what Europeans would have worn, but it was specifically designed to deflect sword blows because that's what they mostly all fought with. And I mean, like they'd spent hundreds of years developing plate armor or, or, or uh, material armor specifically for that. And the swords they fought with were way sharper than sabers. I'm, I'm not talking about like butter knife versus steak knife. I'm talking about butter knife versus, versus Ginsu, motherfucker. Yeah, like something that would cut metal. You know, I mean, it's it's not even because there's no way he would have gotten through the armor with that. I, that's another one where like I'll give him a little bit. I'm willing to believe maybe he leans off the horse and manages to catch one guy in the face by surprise. You know, he gets one of them. I'll buy it. But like. It's fucking god-tier super soldier. The fact that he hasn't slept properly in six months, that he doesn't eat, that he's drunk. You know, he's on a horseback at full steam. And Have now. you considered the fact that he's white? Yeah, well, that's, I think, really where the magic comes from. So yeah. think about it. That's, what it, that's his advantage. <laughs> that's really where his skill lies. He's a white dude. I don't think the people who made this movie were overtly, consciously, intentionally racist. But I do think that white magic found its way into his character. A hundred percent. Found its way in, yes. Yeah. Katsumoto sees what Nathan is doing, holding off so many soldiers, really showcasing his skills in a in a military regiment that doesn't have very got many guys that are able to do much, right? Tom Cruise is a standout among his <laughs> troop. Well, because he is. He's the only one but Well not the only one, but he's the most trained one. Yeah, I mean Billy Connolly like Gets killed, but he shoots some people. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Katsumoto lets him live, essentially. Takes him as a hostage. It's another weird one. I mean, you learn later on what Katsumoto wants from him, but Katsumoto didn't really know he was... I guess it was the fighting spirit that really impressed him. He saw how hard... Algren was fighting to save himself, and that's really what made Katsumoto want him. No, Because otherwise... What makes him want him, he has the dream about the tiger. And he, I forget exactly, but it's oh, yeah. the tiger from across the sea 
it's I forget the exact. It's the quote. prophecy, though. The right? prophecy, and he sees that. It's not just any tiger, though. What kind of tiger is it? It's a tiger with troubled eyes, or mm. something like if that. You, actually, you do. It's more specific than that. You see it on his banner. It's a white tiger. Oh, okay. that is his his symbol. <laughs> Katsumoto's symbol, his clan symbol, is a white tiger, which is not a native animal to Japan. So, mm. yeah. And later, Katsumoto even says that he has to be there for a reason, and he doesn't know. But he knows he's there for a reason, or he thinks so. For sure. So a white guy from across the sea. Wow. It's like the uh, in Beverly Hills Ninja, like the the Great White Warrior or whatever. <laughs> what is he called? Well, I, there's uh, God, you ever heard the that? legend of the Great White Warrior or right? something like that? I don't see a problem with it so much because okay, he's white, but the whole backstory is he fought Indians, and now he's in Japan. So we got three whole separate culture and people and i don't he is a seasoned veteran you're right and this is the type of conflict that he has participated in lack of representation that was not the issue at at hand you know i i i think it's more the idea that like it's an underlying theme the white tiger comes from a foreign land to save us from ourselves you know it's well no well it's not the first first movie i've seen like this tom cruise doesn't actually save anybody they all die at the end and they save him. He becomes the better person. Yeah, but... They he, save him. He's the one that enables them to make their last stand by coming up with a plan to avoid the guns. And they all die at the end. Yeah, but still... So he didn't, I, he that, didn't that's save a victory for them, though, Yeah, that's the thing in his... Well, that's a theme, too. Yeah, and then he takes Katsumoto's sword to the Emperor and gets what he wants. And, they, like, at the end of the day... The fact that he survives, frankly, only underlies it because now you've got the white tiger from a foreign country who comes to show the foreigner savage people the right way to do things. But they showed then, him the right way to do things. And then ends up being the only one who lives through any of it. But they but they showed <laughs> him the right way. He They showed him the deeper meaning and what it means. He tried to show them more and they showed him how to overcome his demons and be a better person. I don't know. It seems like a shallow lesson. So I I, I don't want to derail us too much, but I just want to quickly say that there's a lot of movies like this, right? There's a lot of movies where this is a story. It seems to be like um, an old, like, kind of, almost like a, a, a myth, the old myth of, like, the foreigner comes into the land and he thinks that the people that he's being... Uh, held captive by yeah. or interacting with our savages, but he realizes that his people were the savages the whole time. Yeah, and well, it's the same thing with the Indians, it is, and, right? Yeah. But it's all—I mean, do we have Pocahontas? Yeah, Avatar, Ferngully, Dances with Wolves. This, yeah, absolutely. And, okay, so Dances, the last with, Samurai. <laughs> Dances with Wolves is one of the ones I'd pick out in regards to the comments I'm about to make. There are a lot of stories that do this. A small number of which do it way better than this. And Dances with Wolves is is one of them. There's also a book called Shogun by James Clavell that is almost this a thousand times better about an English man, an Englishman captain captaining a ship that crash lands on the shore of Japan in 1600 on the precipice of a huge civil war, and he ends up being taken in. They, the crew of Europeans, have all been told a bunch of crazy stuff about Japanese savages, and that's what they all believe. And the longer he's there, the more it becomes obvious it was all bullshit and and he comes into the fold. But that element of the white guy from a foreign country being something we needed isn't there, which is what makes it partly a much better story. 
there, there was never an element in any of it that they needed him to be there. He was always an outside element that ended up there. And it makes the story play way better. I, I mean, for other reasons as well. It's just a much better written story, but still. I never had a problem with the white guy angle. And there's one small scene, I think, earlier, right around where we are, where they're kind of mad at Tom Cruise. And they mention that they could work with other people. And they mention the British. So... Who are also white people. Who are also white people. So would that make the story any difference if it was a British guy? You'd be like, oh, the white people, but it's it's a British guy. It's just the same problem with a different white person. So who, but it's the same problem with anyone. I mean, I don't think The story makes an intentional point of overplaying the amount that white people had to do with what was even going on there. Well, well, who did then? Or you could put like an Indian guy? (laughs) Well, I It could be anyone, I guess. I, but would, it, would they ever do that in a movie, though? Would they ever make it a guy no. native to India? They won't even <laughs> give Japanese people the lead parts in movies about Japanese people. They recast Kusanagi as Scarlett Johansson when they made Ghost in the Shell. Like, it I, always comes back to Ghost in the Shell. Well, Katsumoto yeah. in this movie, you could argue, well, Tom Cruise. <laughs> Who's, on the you could argue Who's on the poster? Katsumoto was the main character. He's a co-main character, and he carried the movie Who's with Who's on Tom the poster? Cruise. Tom Cruise, well, whose name is on the poster. Okay, it's a movie. You got to put the movie. But <laughs> I think there you is watch a the movie, Katsumoto there probably is, is. But he, Tom is Cruise, the better. Tom character. Cruise is on every one of those posters. Katsumoto is never on any of them by himself. And even on the ones that Tom Cruise shares the poster on, he's always larger than the others. And we even started this conversation by saying the common misconception, because he's the one on the posters, yeah. is that the term "The Last Samurai" is about him. So you're right. Most of the posters are just Tom Cruise. Yeah. I, and it this says is Tom Cruise in huge letters as big as the title, The Last Samurai. So it, it's almost Tom Cruise is The Last Samurai. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I don't look, I'm not accusing these people of being massively Asian phobic. I don't think this movie was made by a bunch of overt racists, but it, it it's, it's tropey. It's very, very tropey. Until you watch it. I think. No, watching it, it makes better. it worse. No, no I watched it, it makes more it worse. when I watched it again. Ah. Right, there's more to you there's ignore all that. Or more you, to not, come well, on. Not, why ignore. should I have to well, ignore? No, no. If you have to say you I need never... to ignore those issues okay. in order to watch the movie, then I'm right. Okay, I'm okay. Right. No, no, hold on. That was the wrong word. I wouldn't say ignore. It was just never an issue for me. So I didn't ignore them. They just never existed to me, like the way you're thinking. I mean, which would, that I can appreciate. That I can appreciate. But saying I've never noticed it before. Well, not is, noticed. You know, like, it's still there. It yeah. never was an, you never saw it as an issue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, which I can approve. Look, I will actually partly support what you're saying when we get to the the review portion, but okay. let's get there. Okay. Right. So, of course, Nathan is now at the small Japanese samurai village. You know, this is very traditional Japan stuff here. They they work from the land, and a lot of them are training samurai. The men are, of course, and, yeah. you know, the women have very distinct women roles within their society. Tom Cruise is patched up by the hottest single mom in the village. Oh, so fuck yes. He has that going for him, right? Like, <laughs> How do I get injured in this village? <laughs> the hottest single mom that he made single. Oh, yeah, yeah. really, it's true. Because he, he killed her, her husband. He turned her into a single mom. Right. So, like, you know, like... Well, that the, comes up, too. The old meme is like, oh, I'd love to make you a single mom. Like, that, that like meme, there's, like, misogynistic kind of, like, get a girl knocked up. No, it's murder in this case. Son of a bitch. He actually did it. <laughs> her name's Taka. Yes. He's going through alcohol withdrawal and uh, is struggling with that. Sake. 
okay. But it kind of slowly, Alan, as things start to go on, you know, he, he gets away from the alcohol, he gets a little bit better, he heals up, and he kind of like starts to observe the way of the samurai, doesn't he? He has a diary that he writes in. Pussy. <laughs> it's Sorry. like, just and, like Doug Funny. And this is, this is like basically the middle story. This is where he's basically learning about them, like you're saying. And he makes some good points. And one of the points I like is he makes a note where, um, as he's observing them, like you mentioned, that when they wake up, they put all their effort into perfecting the craft that they're doing and that he's never seen anything like that. 1876. Day, unknown. Month, unknown. I continue to live among these unusual people. I am their captive and then I cannot escape. Mostly I'm treated with a kind of a mild neglect. As if I were a stray dog or an unwelcome guest. They are an intriguing people. From the moment they wake, they devote themselves to the perfection of whatever they pursue. I have never seen such discipline. I am surprised to learn that the word samurai means to serve, and that Katsumoto believes his rebellion to be in the service of the emperor. Right. He's very impressed by their discipline yeah. and their work ethic and just their lifestyle. Like, it's not something he's accustomed to being from America, right? Not the kind of thing that we're certainly accustomed to, right? Their, their lifestyle is very unique and specific. And uh, for lack of a better word, it's pretty fucking cool. And I think he relates to that being a soldier because everything else he saw was um, disorganized. And especially the people he just worked with, they lost the fight. So... He realizes how disciplined, like you said, that they are and truly what an enemy they are. Right. And, and he has to stay there for a while. He can't really like leave because he they let him roam around the village, mm -hmm. but he can't leave because one, it's it's about to turn winter and you can't just travel in Japan while during winter. It's not possible. And two, he doesn't really have any means to leave. Like, what is he going to do? Walk 200 miles across the land to, you know. <laughs> And he's still technically a prisoner of war. Right. They do have someone that, like, stays with him all the time to make sure he doesn't, like, fuck things up or poison the well or whatever. <gasps> so as he starts to observe the samurai, eventually he, he slowly kind of, like, makes his way into participating with some of their samurai training. It starts lightly, I think. It starts in a, in a good way. He's, he sees some kids playing playing samurai right they're they're practicing sword fighting with what are those wooden things called steve boken yeah of course steve <laughs> well you know that that's funny because playing but for how disciplined they were they were probably training or i think they were more yeah they you could really... say either one but that's that's part of what they did so they were playing but yeah. they were also training from an early age yeah exactly i mean i'm sure i'm sure there was some amount of horseplay with right. kids but yeah essentially most of the time that ground so they were they that was a they were, should have been training yeah and uh, Nathan steps in and kind of participates with them. And I, I guess he like, gets the upper hand on one of the kids in their little sword play to a degree, right? Yeah, I mean, I... He realizes that one of the kids is trying to, like, whack him across the head. And he, like, stops him. Yeah, I mean, I 
a kid at that age probably would have been this that particular moment's not a huge issue for me. That, a kid that age probably would have been a little more adept than they played him to be, just because they started him off basically as soon as they were old enough to stand. But uh, yeah, I mean that was kind of amusing. But then you know then then one of the grown ups sees what's going on. There's an <laughs> there's an important part there when he's fighting the kid that I always thought maybe I got this wrong, but he's playing with the kid, and when the kid swings at the end, he grabs the the sword to stop it but they're playing with wooden swords oh yeah but i think one of the things with the samurai is they always train like it's a real sword so when he grabs it to stop it it's like disrespectful because you can't really you can't grab a sword to stop it that's not supposed that's to be not an supposed option. to be an option yeah yeah, yeah so the older samurai sees that it's like hey you know. Right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you can't do it in real life. Like yeah. you said, you try grabbing a katana that's swinging at you, the hand's hand. just going to go off. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he grabs it, but he doesn't know that because he's not. He doesn't know like the that. rules, really. Right. But Ujio steps in. Now, this guy is like the right hand man. Yeah. Of, of Katsumoto. So Ujio kind of does like a, I don't know if it's like a training session or like a put you in your place kind of sword lesson with a little, a little bit of both yeah. Yeah. I think it was Nathan both. Nathan tries to go toe to toe with him and just gets his fucking ass handed to him hard yeah now this this is probably one of my two or three favorite scenes in the whole movie this part played really well that I, I you know if they had just done more, more of that with him the fact that the character will get hit and then get back up again is appreciable like that's supposed to be that character's like the American resolve to take the hit, fall off the horse, and get off, get up again, and keep doing the it. The like, Rocky mentality. Yeah, yeah. You know how many that, times you can get up. Yeah, <laughs> that part plays really well, and on that basis, I can understand why they'd respect him, even if he's no good with the sword. At least he's got that that fighter. He's got American like, grit. Well, wait, yeah. this, he this can't goes teach that <laughs> back to what we were talking about earlier. But I don't the way he's holding the sword, and yeah. he does get his ass kicked and for sure. But in the exchange, there are some strikes between them and you can see the his american saber training versus the samurai training right. even though he loses when Cruz spent a few weeks learning some basic sword handling you apparently figure out which grips were right and wrong at least basically so i i'm, I'm sure that was intentional it was a nice little touch it was a nice little touch but it's just when you combine it with where they started off that first time and there's like there's another couple of moments I'm going to mention later on, it, it's, it unfortunately gets washed out. But this scene by itself, on its own, I really liked. I like that. There's another scene that goes either before or after it where he's having he's having dinner with Taka and her family and uh, and the two boys. And he's sort of realizing how out of place he is. And I think the younger boy's name is Magojiro, starts making faces at him. And I, that, that part was really good. I, th- I laughed out loud. That was very funny. Yeah. yeah. There, there are cute human moments with him interacting with them (laughs) and i think a lot of that stuff is done like pretty well you know like he's treated with such respect that he can't be like angry with them despite being their prisoner that's part of why i feel so conflicted about this movie is because i get to those moments and i'm like why why couldn't this movie just be all these well done moments why did you have to sprinkle in the other stuff well they had to lead up to that how he got captured it's not a matter of not understanding what the necessities in the story. It's a matter of not understanding why they had to play it in such a ridiculous way. Like, yeah, I mean, I get it. Like, otherwise, they could have just started the film with him living in the village. But, you know, like, it doesn't have to be done that way. Mm-hmm. 
Well, Nathan starts to respect and understand the discipline of the Japanese. We are pretty cool after all, us Japanese. I'm sure you guys feel the same way about me as he feels about them. <laughs> but he, he starts to train with them. He's introduced to more training. He learns their ways. He, he kind of finds an inner peace and spirituality. And I think that's, that's a big component of it. It's not just like the, the military training that he gets right. with them. It's like the peacefulness. And a lot of it comes from, one, the discipline of his yeah. fellows, and then two, the environment that he's in. Like, how could you not have inner peace in that environment? Yeah. You know? Samurai mostly all followed um, Rinzai schools and Buddhism. And right. That was a huge part of that. And yeah, I think one of the nicer touches is he, I don't think he understands that what he's doing is adopting a little bit of that, but that's fine. The character doesn't really need to get it. Like, I think he does impart some of that. What Katsumoto tells him about Bushido. Yeah, and that, and that's that you mentioned it right there. That's a point. The whole point of the story is he doesn't get it, but he comes to get some of it. And he actually, in his journal during this whole montage, there's a scene where he says he doesn't begin to understand everything going on. So he said he straight up admits he's like, I don't understand all this. Yeah, I mean, but he knows there's like something. But greater. it's like he feels it. Yeah. Like there's a yeah. there's a connection to it. I yeah. mean, it it look. You got that moment. You got the moment where Ujio beats him with the sword, and there's there's those moments where it's like, oh, here's them doing it right. But then you've got other moments where it's like, there's a there's a moment later on where he's outside a building and he, he gets jumped by four or five other guys with weapons, and it's like Luke channeling the Force to shoot the final shot at the Death Star. I can oh. hear I can hear Obi Wan going, "Channel the Force, Nathan," and he has the fucking Zen moment. He can see everything that's going to happen. All of a sudden, a guy that spent six months playing with a wooden sword is Mr. Super Zen. It's like, I'm sorry, but... Well, he one, was the soldier before that. One doesn't... Yeah, but it doesn't matter. Let's put that on hold for now, real quick, because yeah. I kind of want to keep it on track with where we are on the story. I, we promise we will get to that. All right. But as he starts learning their ways and as he starts training, I think one of the things that is overlooked in this movie, and I think it's an important part of it, is the fact that he stops drinking. Yeah, that's a huge component to his like mental stability is getting rid of his addiction, right? And finding a reason to not have to drink anymore. And I'm going to come back to that later. But he does stop drinking in the village. And that's a contributing factor to his learning. And here's a perfect moment for you to bitch, Steve. Because he does some more advanced sword training with Yujio, who's basically the best. Yeah, well, and this is the first time it happens. Like he, it start the scene starts off well, and he's learning slowly. But then, like the son, Katsumoto's son explains to him, "You you have too many thoughts. There's too many things in your head. You're you're thinking about the people around you. You're thinking about the sword. You're thinking about the birds. Blah blah blah. You need to. It has to be let go of. Like you have to get to a point with your training." where you're moving on instinct and thought goes out the window. And he's absolutely right. And sword art, Kenjutsu teachers will tell you the same thing. And it's an appreciated scene and it's neat to see Nathan taking a first step toward understanding that. And and I can I could appreciate that if that's that's all they did. But it's not something you get in five minutes because somebody told you about it. It, it, it takes years. Well, it's one of the it's one of the things Buddhist monks will talk about. It, it takes years. You, I guarantee you, cannot cannot completely turn your brain off for more than about ninety seconds at a time. You can't. Something will creep in. Something will creep in. These guys have to train for years to be able to really turn off to that degree. And I understand 
that Nathan was supposed to be a soldier before, but not that kind of soldier, not with those weapons, not with that mentality. He used muskets. He used a saber, which in practice would almost never have been touched in American combat. Like the fact that he was a soldier before does not explain this. It's it's a force moment. It's it's the same criticism I have of Ray suddenly being so adept with a lightsaber in the sequels. It just doesn't make sense. Like I can appreciate a step in the right direction and maybe he's now good enough that he can parry a couple of the first blows, blows from Ugio, but he's just all of a sudden, Jesus is here. I get it. And I can win a fight against a guy who's been doing this for three decades. And I don't buy it. There's no amount of any background they've given him that makes any sense. I do not buy it. But does he win the fight, Alan? Well, against Yu-Gi-Oh? Does he? No. Well, it's not a complete win, but I mean, it's definitely a, it's a huge leap. It's a huge leap. No, let me go back, because Steve made several points, and he's right on a lot of that. The one part you mentioned with being a soldier, which is what I would bring up, is Steve's right as far as the weapons, the equipment, the sword was obviously different. But you touched on the point, the mentality, that's a huge part of being a soldier and what soldiers across any uh, span, country, group can share. Not the exact same mentality, but there is that soldier mentality. And that's the most common link, I think, among everybody. I think that's bullshit, frankly. I'm sorry, dude. I think that's that's... bullshit. Like, I have family that were service people. Like, it's not, it's not. It's that type of Zen mind thing doesn't apply to Western war. It's, it's. It's a huge part of of what underlines this story. They even show it to you. They even get there at the end with the howitzers. That that we don't. The the focus is the firepower. The focus is the force. The for, the focus is a unit that goes in and sweeps them out. The focus is blitzkrieg. This is how Western war works. Like, sure, you want your soldiers in the field to be able to dis- disassociate because if they're thinking about their wife and kids, they're not going to want to go kill people. But at the same time, like. The, the the whole Zen mind thing is so specific to that, and there's no equivalent to it in Western theology. It just doesn't exist in West in the Western world in that degree. And this is a person that definitely never would have heard of it before. This is a guy who is so incapable of doing that. He has spent his entire adult life drinking because the alcohol is what does it for him. And I'm not trying to insult anyone or or even say that you can't achieve that in recovery. But I would I would bet. Now, as someone who's never been in recovery, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but that's something that even a person in recovery has to spend some time working on. It's not like I'm, I've been sober for three days or even three months and I'm, I'm there. I don't, I don't think it happens like that. The mentality, though, is part of what, like you're saying, ha- has him learn that so fast. And on your point, there's, not, there's no point, at least if I remember right, that he's he's a full samurai or that he fully gets it. You know, he's learning it and he understands it and he has enough background training where he can realize what's happening or see their training. But he even says he doesn't understand all of it and he doesn't become like when he says that what he's talking about is philosophy. And that's exactly my point. Like he, he doesn't become like a full fledged. You're saying he's not like a master of that. That's what I'm saying. He he never becomes a master of it. It's awfully, awfully big steps. They're it's big steps for sure. Big steps. And his you couldn't do that in six months, Steve? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> With everything not. you know about Japanese culture, you couldn't achieve this? No, fuck that. If I, you give me six months intense sword training with a master, a real samurai would kill me in less than a minute. But I'm you, would, sure you would still improve massively, especially if you were the previous Would guy. you be able to draw with Ujio? 
Would you be able to draw in eight moves or whatever, however many moves it was? Make a draw. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm willing to believe in six months, someone who was naturally good at it could learn to parry a couple of initial shots. I'd believe that. But he goes way beyond that. He goes way beyond that. And this is, this is a guy who they've made a point of underlining is the exact opposite type of mind. Again, this is a guy who spent years burying his bad memories in alcohol because he doesn't have the capacity as a person to zen out in that way. And again, that's not to say that because he was an alcoholic, he can't learn to do it. I just don't think it's like well, you've been sober for six months and now you're you're on a zen level. The, I, only, I, the only point to that is we talked about it towards the beginning in the first fight when he fights all the samurai initially. Because after that, he never fights any other samurai or defeats them or shows to be like a master of the arts. Even the last battle... It's against the conscripted peasants. So he never like, I don't know. There is gains a, like a, see, like a I, I masterful status. getting drawn to that one moment, and it's farther in the film. But there definitely is a moment where he does it. He gets attacked by a group of guys with weapons. Fuck it. Oh, let's okay, just talk okay. about it now. Okay, yeah, it you're right. Okay, you're right. You're right. It, there's Fuck a moment, moment later in the movie. Nomura tries to assassinate Yeah, him. The, the emperor's ambassador decides that Algren is too much trouble, right. and if he's not going to leave, then we're going to kill him. Right. So he sends a group of guys to kill Algren, and when Algren goes outside the hotel, that's the moment I was like, we watched that last moment. Just the last 10 minutes of episode four and Luke's in the X-Wing and he's in the channel and he's headed toward the, the, the porthole where he's got to fire that missile and you get Obi-Wan's voice and Luke channeled the force and, and Luke Luke can do it. And even in Star Wars, it's pretty questionable because Luke had had like no training at all. But but that's kind of an extension to the point here as well. That's just like, that's just the way Star Wars goes though. It is the way Star Wars goes. <laughs> and Star Wars, Star Wars is so far into sci-fi, and I don't mean this as a knock because you know I'm a fantasy. Fan. Yeah, fantasy, sci-fi, fantasy. That like, fine, I can roll it all in, right? But this is not presented as a work of fantasy, not even a little bit. Even then, how he, can he do magic? Right? Even that ridiculous forty-seven Ronin with Keanu Reeves, which is way more intellectually insulting than this is. <laughs> that movie's a thousand times worse than this one is. But even still, like, it, it, it's it's crazy, and I, I just don't. They make him out to be like this sort of super adept and the, like there's this underlying current that the reason the samurai really come to respect him is that they see that he's got this zen samurai spirit inside of him and i'm like this dude's a drunk but he's never really done anything it's both ways it's the mutual respect they see it in each other the th that's katsumoto and algren yeah they, i they know I, each other. look i'm not having an issue with the thematics I understand why narratives work the way okay. they do. The, it, it's unrealistic, condescending, and ridiculous. And, and in a movie that is supposed to be at least a little bit taken from historical fact, I don't want to see a white guy become a, a pseudo-samurai in an eight-month period. I'm sorry. Like, this, there's a, a Takashi Miike uh, movie called 13 Samurai, or 13 Assassins. It's one of his best movies. It's about a group of rebel samurai who get caught inside of a fortress trying to win a battle they can't win and that that would have been way better you don't need the outside person to even be there like i understand it it's one of those stories about a white racist dude who finds redemption and comes to terms with who he is as a person and becomes a better man as time goes on i get it he learns lessons from the samurai he comes to respect them he understands they're not as savage as he thought they were i understand that these are all themes this movie touches on i get it it just does it poorly but like, he never right. he never becomes let, a samurai. Let Alan have a word for a moment. All right. I, I say it to Steve to argue that or counter that. He never becomes a samurai. 
There's nothing that says they never say your training's done. They never say you're a samurai. Nobody ever calls knows, Luke a Jedi either. Never says he's a samurai. No, they do. Right? There's no point in the OT where Yoda ever says you're done. You're ready. In fact, if anything, Yoda says you haven't had enough training. You shouldn't leave. Uh, it, it, I can confirm that he is never. He only calls himself a Jedi. Yeah. In Return of the Jedi. Yeah. He says, "Then I am a Jedi to Yoda," and Luke's like, and Yoda's like, "No, you got to beat Vader." And then he says to Palpatine, I am a Jedi like my father before me. Right. And and he's definitely on the road there. And but that doesn't it doesn't have to follow Star Wars. I'm, no, no. We don't have to. But Tom Cruise never right. calls himself a samurai. No, but at the end. He says, I am the last samurai. <laughs> yeah, but he's, <laughs> he said it. He said it. But, he, but yeah, I mean, and that's like, and that's the implication is there. And it, at the end, he shows up carrying the sword, wearing the armor. And it's like, this is the last samurai. Whether or not that's really what it's supposed to mean. That's the impression you get left with. It is an interpretation that audience members are left with. And, you know, you can say, like, well, that, that wasn't what we intended. But it's like, well, you made the fucking movie a certain way. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to say after the fact that's not what I meant. And it's like, well, it's fine that's not what you meant. But it's the impression everyone literally walked away with. So... It, what you meant kind of stops being relevant. Why is that such a highly upvoted IMDb fact that The Last Samurai is not referring to Tom Cruise? Because it, people didn't know that. Right? That's why it's such a highly upvoted IMDb fact. That's my point. I'm not even saying this is a bad movie. It's actually not really a bad movie. It, in fact, a lot of it is really well made, and the actors are good, and the costuming is nice, and the story is kind of compelling. Really good environments, Yeah, too. really good environments. They did a nice job of making New Zealand look like Japan. They did a great yeah. job recreating the port of Yokohama when Algren first gets there. They did a really nice scene crafting that first time he tries to wield the sword against Yu-Gi-Oh! And in the scene where he has dinner with the family, a lot of this movie is pretty good. It's just also about a kind of magic white guy. I'm sorry. It is. It is. One of the scenes that I think is pretty good, Alan, mm. is when you get a good old classic samurais versus ninjas fight. The three ninjas... This scene is lit. I will give credit where credit's due. The three ninjas show up. Rocky, Colt, and Tum Tum, and they try to take out the samurai. But the samurai prove to be too much for them, don't they, Alan? Yeah, yeah. But this this makes it a little more, like you said, because we're doing the samurai thing, but now here come ninjas. <laughs> if pirates showed up, this would have been off the fucking chain. It would have been the complete, the trifecta. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa, that's an interesting movie idea. What if a ship-carrying samurai crashed on an island that pirates were already hanging out on? Oh my god, I Samurai versus pirates. Oh, here comes the here comes Japanese a, savior. Here yeah, comes exactly. your no, no, nobody's saving anyone savior. in this one. This is everyone killing each other. <laughs> Unless you know, if there's a Wait. savior in this, it's gonna be Sam Jackson. He doesn't learn the ways <laughs> of the pirates and realize that they're actually honorable. No, no, no. This they're is gonna be just drunk yeah. bandits. This is <laughs> gonna opposite. be th- yeah. This is just gonna be all out samurais and pirates having death fights with each other. No one learns anything. <laughs> so it's like during like a, a play, like they're having like Kabuki. You know, Nighttime festivities, a little bit of kabuki theater yeah. for the kids. Everyone's watching. It's kind of a good time. And then these fucking straight-up ninja assassins, like in the traditional sense of ninjas, right? Yeah. They sneak up. They scale a wall. They're quiet. They're, they're wearing all, all black. They wear all black because it's night. Yeah. They're not wearing blue camouflage for no reason, you know? It's like, yeah. sorry, they have, ninjas. They have like, the shoes, so they're quiet. Right. They got, like, the shoes with the two toes. Like, you gotta love in some of these movies where they give ninjas, like, red geese and stuff. It's like, Why? Why would they ever do that? Yeah. <laughs> what, where are they hiding in a bloodbath? Well, my favorite is surf ninjas. When they, yeah, they could blue. Because they, they're wearing blue camo and they're fighting yeah. them like in their home or on the beach. 
And uh, Rob Snyder even says, he's like, wow, the camouflage sure does make them blend into their surroundings. <laughs> There's a small part I noticed here when they're fighting the ninjas. Well, because they're doing their play and then you just sneak up and try to assassinate Katsumoto. But when they're fighting and there's some close-ups and you can see that their eyes, they have like like a camo paint or some kind of paint. Like oh, Matt Reeves' yeah. Batman black. Yeah, so eyes. I don't know if that's like was a thing or that's like they really did that. I, I would feel like, you know, they're trying to be all blacked out. Like, well, that's what I yeah. mean. Yeah. So and I, I don't cool know for sure if that's, some, that's historic. It doesn't really matter, but like I feel like this is a pretty good, accurate representation of what I would think ninjas would be like, you right. know? From what I've read, they, they did a pretty good job. I mean, I'm not enough of an... I, I mean, my eye, it looks pretty accurate, but I'm not enough of an expert to always say. But from what I've read, even people who are experts enough to say said so they actually they did a pretty good job. Holy shit, this might be... This might qualify this movie for being on the ninja series of Big Dumb Movie. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, pretty ninja-esque in some ways. Oh, I think shit. you can reference this scene at least. That's some good ninja action. Do I add this episode to the ninja playlist? Teenage Mutant Ninja Scientologist. <laughs> <laughs> the samurai movie that has one part with ninja. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a good scene, though, right? Yeah. It's a really good scene. No, I mean, look, I, there's a lot of this movie, again, I'll give credit to, including this part. This is an awesome scene. They did a really nice job with coordinating the fight. It's cool the way they kind of crawl in. This isn't really a criticism. If I were going to criticize, in quotes, anything at all, it would have been nice if they'd expanded it by maybe 45 seconds just to have some cool shots of some of the ninjas, like, sneaking in to the village over the wall, setting up. But, that you know, that's that's not really a criticism. Overall, the scene was, was really well, cool. Okay, so here, I'm not trying to sound like a jerk, but you have a problem with all the other scenes. But then this scene, he just kills, like several ninjas. Well, okay. The ninjas should just fuck them up. I, I will say you're right about that and if I were going to really nitpick, that is the part I would nitpick. It's the same thing. They're like I, trained ninjas. I they don't just think he'd really him. be able to fight that many of them off by himself. I think they, they would have killed them. Yeah. That's another group You, of you don't think the last samurai could beat a few ninjas? No. No. <laughs> well, that's, that's no. what I'm saying. If yeah. that's the case, the ninjas are No, are you're right. You're right. I really, if I'm being honest, I really just like this scene because it's fun and they coordinated the fight well, but if I'm analyzing it on the same plane as I did the rest of the movie, then you are right. It's ridiculous. I don't think he would have survived that. I mean, even, even some of the samurai in that scene, one thing I will give them credit for, even some of the samurai get killed, yeah. which is pretty realistic. Like, even a samurai versus a ninja, different skill set, Environment would have made a difference, but that's that's probably possible. Well, they're still human, but everyone can yeah. Die. But and and ninja ninjutsu training was nuts. If you look up what life was like for some of the ninja clan, like in Iga, it, it's fucking nuts the way those guys were trained. And they had these fucking mansion-sized houses with secret rooms, walls that rotate. There's videos of it online, like structures that have been around since the 1500s, and they show you where all the ninjas' hiding spots were. Fucking crazy stuff. Snyder trained them, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, this goes back to being a. Not quite the same, but almost similar soldier or a, a person of war and fighting ninjas, samurai, cavalry guys. At least their, with the ninja, the one thing soldiers. I'll give Algren a little bit of leeway with is that there, the, the presence of the katana makes a huge difference. A samurai with a katana in his hand, those guys were experts in hand-to-hand combat, but that, that makes them even deadlier. Because now they've you've got 16 inches worth of blade reach, you know, you can't even necessarily get near them. So with the ninja, at least, it's all hand-to-hand mostly and not so much long weapons. But right. e- but even still. They had swords. Yeah, they did have short swords. They did have they, crossbows, too. They would carry something that was a little longer than a tanto, but they weren't nearly as big or as sharp as a, a katana. Yeah. But they fight off the ninjas. The ninjas yeah. did occasionally carry the stars, though. The throwing stars were fucking legit. Ninjas get their shit wrecked. <laughs> right? Get fucked. Samurai win, bitch. 
<laughs> and uh, now Nathan is pretty much like accepted, right? And as like kind of like a full-fledged member of the village. I, I think that's yeah. like the real turning point is because he fights alongside them and he really earns their respect. And he like protects people. He, he protects the family. He saves a kid. And, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty much in really good graces with him now. And I guess where that leads is they say, you know, we're going to go back into the city and you can leave. Like, you mm. you know, we're not going to kill you as a prisoner. You know, we've, we respect you. You can go. The emperor granted him safe passage. <laughs> and that part makes sense. I mean, you help them fight off an enemy, then it probably endear you at least a little bit. So, yeah, this, this transitions, I think, into the last maybe quarter of the movie because... This is where he's back from the village and then slowly realizes and shortly he'll go back to them. Yeah, he doesn't want to like rejoin the army again. Like he's the way he like plays it off when people talk to him is that he's kind of like on the fence. Like he's he's not really giving a lot of answers. He's just like, I was a prisoner. You know, they say, well, how many men do they have? How many samurai? And he's like, I don't know. I was just a prisoner, man. Yeah, they're just savages, like you said. Yeah, and I think there's one part during that conversation where Bagley is referring to them again as savages and points out that they still wear armor. And I thought that's an especially funny thing to think about in in retrospect, because you fast forward to really the last 35 plus years, and especially now, body armor for soldiers is totally commonplace. Every American soldier wears body armor. Body armor, goggles. Yep. Yeah, yeah, you have all that shit. Gloves, right? You have and all that. You basically have armor. And it's you like have all it's that shit. Funny to think about. Obviously, the character wouldn't have known, but it's funny to think about in retrospect that actually that era during which our soldiers weren't wearing armor was when they were being stupid. Like the armored <laughs> ones were the right ones. <laughs> like we just went back to armor. They wear right. helmets. Those fucking pussies. You yeah, know? exactly. Yeah, why would you wear something that might protect your body from the thing someone's trying to kill you with? Like, <laughs> fight like a man. Fight right. naked. Just take the fucking bullet. <laughs> Your dick hanging out. Yeah, dick's out. <laughs> For Harambe. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so so Tom Cruise is back, and he's uh, obviously a changed person, and they can tell. It's a, I think there's a good chemistry between him and Bagley, particularly here, because, like you said, he's given kind of half-ass answers, but he, he picks up on that immediately. He's like, what do you know? Yeah. They, they pick up on that. And he's not really, like, interested in retraining or rejoining the troops that are going to fight against these people that he just spent like whatever six to eight months with (laughs) but this is where he finds out while he was in the village they were still training and Amora has only upped the speed and the training and everything and they got the big guns now they got the howitzers yeah that was that was a huge thing and rotating guns had been a big development just a handful of years before during the American Civil War and um yeah, yeah, that was a big deal at the time. He mentions 200 rounds a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you think about a world like we were saying before where most of the firearms are single shot and then take 90 seconds to reload. Like, that's that's insane. We do spend a little bit of time, like, in town. Uh, we're back in Yokohama. Yeah, and this is where, like, the emperor is, and he kind of has, like, a brief conversation with Katsumoto. And... I don't fully understand. Oh, no, wait, that wasn't Dita with Yokohama. They were somewhere else, but yeah, you're right. I don't fully understand their relationship. Like, I know that, like, they have a close bond because one trained the other, but, like, it seems like to me that Katsumoto's, like, actively fighting the Emperor's troops, right? Yeah, well, so the Emperor, because in this movie he's depicted as being so weak and complacent, is letting these corrupt advisors do everything for him. 
the Katsumoto believes he's fighting on the emperor's behalf. He believes he's trying to wrestle control of the country away from these ill-intentioned advisors so that control can be given properly back to the emperor. But and the or- people. And the people, yeah. But in order to do this, he has to technically fight advisors and imperial army members who are representatives themselves of the emperor. I think this is where the emperor asks him for advice. Yeah. And he tells the emperor, to Steve's point, because they portray him as weak, Katsumoto tells him that he has to find out or do it himself. So Katsumoto doesn't tell him what to do. Yeah. Katsumoto says he has to figure it out. Yeah, so it's, it's, but you're right, and that's how uh, the Amora character especially portrays him as being an enemy, because look, he fights our soldiers. In fact, later on in the council chamber, we, uh, he shows up wearing his swords to, the, to a council meeting. And Amora says, there's a new law, you can't carry the swords anymore. This is all part of, this, this really happened. It was all when part they of outlawed attempt, the swords? Yeah. yeah, it was all part of attempt, an attempt really to kill the samurai, ma- making it illegal for them to carry their swords, which is something everyone knew they were never going to agree to. And uh, trying to take away our guns, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you know, and, and they would show up with their primary. Like to take it from my cold dead right. fingers, buddy. And and these were people you didn't necessarily typically have to worry about being crazy, at least not a lot of the time. But they would even show up, and he did it in the movie. It was a nice touch. They would show up anytime they were around people like the emperor. Their primary sword would be wrapped in something and tied with a ribbon as a symbol that I've made the sword useless. I can't unsheathe it. I can't use it against you even if I wanted to. So, you know, there, it was, it's all very symbolic. And so Amora tells him, take take the sword off. And when he when he refuses to, and the emperor, I think it's in the scene, the emperor tries to defend him and Amora says something to the effect of, you know, he's killing your soldiers, trying to make him seem like he's an enemy. And Omura really just wants the samurai to be gone so he can be rich. Yeah. He so gets, he, like, more railroad land or some shit. Yeah, they're resisting the westernization that's making him wealthy. I right. think he so. just represents the corrupt business guy, you know, the, the yeah. immoral, just money. Like, everything's just about power and money. And he's, he's, as shitty as he is, is made out to be pretty politically adept when it gets to the point that the American ambassador is trying to pressure him into signing a deal... Because the, the American thinks he's got leverage, Omora basically turns around and says, "I can get what you're offering us from anybody." And that's if when he mentions the British. Yeah, if you don't want to, if you don't want to wait, you can just leave. And in reality, they were buying pretty much all the weapons they could need from the Prussians. But whatever. There, there's one guy, one of the samurai, Japanese legalist guy. Oh yeah. The cops stop him and they they cut off his top knot. They yeah. really fucking disrespect this dude he's... in front of his whole family. SWAT came into my house, disrespected my whole family because somebody knocked me out. And you know what? It was you. He's Katsumoto's son. He's he, he's supposed to be. In, he was in charge of the village that Cruz had been living in. Yeah, the top knot. The top knot's a big deal. That's like it's like the sword. It's a part of the identity. It's considered a right to have it. How come some have the top knot and some have the like the balding the 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 Doctor Phil look? Yeah, you know that one. I've never found a and surely someone knows, but I myself have never found a sufficient answer for. I think though, because not every guy can have a full head of hair, right? Well, that's <laughs> probably part of it. But then, yeah. so I know if you go back far enough in time, there are certain elements that the Japanese. And this isn't the negative. It's not a knock. There, if you go back really early in Japanese history, there were certain things they just borrowed from the Chinese because the Chinese already had a way of doing it. And then over time, the Japanese would sort of modify that practice 
to their own liking. And I know that in Chinese courts, there was often symbology with hairdos. Seems weird to think about now, but it really did exist. Symbolism. Symbolism, yeah. I think the word you're looking for is symbolism. <laughs> right? And uh, I don't know for sure, but it might be one of those types of things. If you go back far enough, the earliest portions of the Japanese alphabet were modified Chinese characters, etc., yeah. etc. Et so, yeah. Of course I know that, Steve. I'm a Japanese-American. <laughs> right. Where's your top nut? <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> but I'm not only a Japanese-American that is deeply offended by this movie. I am also <laughs> an alcoholic that is deeply offended by this movie. I think this is one of the most egregious things in the movie that's looked over, and that's where Nathan comes back briefly mm-hmm. to town, right? He sees Tony Goldwyn, he sees, he oh, sees his superior yeah, officers, right. and he fucking relapses, yeah. throwing everything he has worked for out the window for no reason. I really hate this story-wise, and it's yeah. not really explored. Like, he relapses, but then he's just, like, okay to continue being good. Like, it really does not make any sense. No, and I got the impression what they were aiming for was he went back to drinking because he was back around all the unpleasant people. But it's like, I I don't know. It doesn't make sense, though, for him to stay on the straight and narrow path Yeah. in terms of, like, what he's trying to do for the greater good and still having had relapse. Like, no, you're absolutely. I, sometimes movie alcoholics is stupid. Well, yeah, I mean, even <laughs> I know just from second and third hand that they never, almost never, anyway, depict it as being anything like what the reality is. Yeah. Right, but just, and I know it's like small in the movie, but it's a gripe for me for sure. The right. fact that there's no consequences of his relapse. Yeah, well, I mean, it just seems like I don't know. I mean, and he goes back to drinking hard. Like you'd think, he'd, 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 even just that few weeks off, he'd get sick. I don't know. Well, he does, right? In the village. Well, he yeah, when, he, when he's recovering. But I would think if you went, I mean, you know better than me, but you, you, you've you been off for six months and then you go back to drinking the same way you were before. I'd think you'd get sick really quickly. Well, it's, it's like, like smoking. Your tolerance goes back down. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Not though, only yeah. the tolerance, but like, it's like he, he just climbed out of a pit. Yeah. And then once he reached the top, he just got, like jumped back in it. Yeah. Right. So like, <laughs> but I'm just, I'm just thinking from a practical physical perspective, like if your physical tolerance gets to the point where you're drinking 18 ounces a day of scotch and then you go sober for eight months and then you go back to 18 ounces of scotch, I feel like you just die. Yeah. Like your tolerance, that to- tolerance doesn't exist anymore. I know that happens with a lot of opiate users. Well, they that's for sure. For, that's a you get physiology. For a while, yeah, and then they yeah. go back and they overdose because they don't realize their tolerance is dropped. Yeah. I don't know the exact biology yeah. of it, but that's like for sure <laughs> that happens. Anyway, there's a plan to kind of take Katsumoto out of the camp to bring him back home. And I guess Nathan kind of like indirectly convinces him of pursuing an uprising of some kind. He, he tells him, Make the emperor hear you, and, yeah. and I guess Katsumoto interprets that as a samurai would like this on the is, field of battle. This is important because this is a this is this is leading to the last chapter of the whole movie. Yes, and this is where he rejects it completely because this is where he decides he's going to fight with them. This is where he commits to being with the samurai. Yeah, so he he, he has chosen his side, chosen right. He's been on both sides of the fence, and he knows which one is the right one to be yeah. on, essentially. I'm a Scientologist. I mean, a samurai. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Both uh, religions of honor, Steve. Absolutely. <laughs> One more expensive than the other. Tom, the, Nathan Algren just needed an auditing. He could have gotten rid of the Thetans and he'd be fine. You don't get rid of Thetans. All uh, right. The Thetans are... Oh, yeah, they're, they're, the Thetans are the way you measure how many of those aliens are hanging around your body, right? No. <laughs> so, 
I, I like to take this opportunity to clear up some misconceptions about Scientology. Why? <laughs> I mean, because I have a lot of questions. I want to be people honest. to hate it for the right reason. <laughs> All right, go ahead. <laughs> so, what is a thetan? You may ask. It's a word you've heard a lot of. People say thetans or thetan levels. A thetan is your soul. Well, then how would they wait? Then the term thetan meter makes no sense. It's not a thetan meter. It's an e meter. Then what is it measuring? So what it's actually measuring is your I mean, mind really. thinking of something. Okay, so nothing. So no, it, it's 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 well, essentially one third of a polygraph. So a polygraph has like three components to it. Yeah, so it's enough to measure the tiny little electrical impulses That's what that I was represent say. activity and literally but, nothing else. So basically, but you can't do that yet, or they, can they do that? You yeah, have to do that with like advanced computers and shit. Yeah, I mean, they've got stuff like that in hospitals. It's literally just looking for little electrical impulses. Yeah, so they ask you a question, and then the meter will tell them if if their question triggered a thought. So what this verifies is that your brain functions. Well, no, they want to... really verify that. They want to make sure that they get you to say what it is you were thinking of, and you can't lie that you thought of something when they asked you a question. And but you, you better be, tell them what it is. You could be thinking of anything. Just brain activity. What yeah, I, I mean, of I could say blue giraffe. How the fuck are they going to know? Yeah. So if I'm like Steve, have you ever sucked a guy's dick? Absolutely, and, yes, a thousand times. Right, and then the, and that it, was a total lie. It, the the <laughs> meter will trigger if you think in your head of a, of an actual answer, but like you actually probably haven't, right? So like, no, there would be no activity on the meter, and you would but just be like, you no. Would, but I had you to can think, think of anything. Speak. Yeah. No. What if you thought? What if you looked at the wall? And it's like, not just triggering a thought. It's like a lie detector, right? It's like it's like the same way the meter reads on a polygraph. If yeah, you, polygraphs are so unreliable; they can't be used in court. So. I'm kind of with Steve. On it's the same oh, concept. Yeah, they're not they're not super reliable. You can fake them. I have faked. The that's that's kind of what I'm thinking. Is like it, I, it requires a lot of concentration. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. I'm not. I wouldn't say it wouldn't come without effort. It just seems like the kind of thing you could screw with if you were capable. Though. Plus, you're you're inherently nervous when you're connected to the meter. So like you're you're already like on edge. Well, that's another part that weirds me out. I mean, I understand that ultimately what they're measuring is nothing because this is all bullshit. And somebody pulled well, L. Ron Hubbard pulled half of it out of his butt, and then other criminals made up the rest of it. But. It's just like, they, it's so weird to me that this is supposed to be the basis for something. They make you nervous on purpose to set it off. And then they tell you you're nervous because something's wrong with you. And what they've got is the plan that will fix what's wrong with you. And it all goes back to aliens being dumped in volcanoes. And I understand that that might only be like this much of it when you get to level 35. But the fact <laughs> that it's involved at all is fucking crazy. <laughs> I'm like, ah. Yeah, but anyone that's a Scientologist will actively tell you that that's, there are no alien stories, like all that's bullshit, because that's a leak, and that's something that not everyone knows. Right. The fact that, and that comes out in a, a level, like you said, it's called OT3, right. operating Thetan, level three. three yeah. So you're operating as your own Thetan at the third God. level, you know, and there's eight, and there's a ninth coming How out soon. How many books do you have to buy to get to four? <laughs> it's not, oh, it's, not, it's way more than buying books. Right, I'm talking sure. about a lot of money here. You gotta be Tom Cruise. But, so, you eventually learn that, through a series of books and audio recordings that they literally handcuff to you. Do these people just not bother looking up what kind of person L. Ron Hubbard was? No, Because I they feel don't. like once you know anything about him, I mean, let me let me revise. And I really don't mean to insult anyone, but I'm just going to be honest. I feel like you should be able to pick all of this out as total bullshit if you're over the age of 10 anyway. But then I feel like if you're literate enough to then go read the Wikipedia about L. Ron Hubbard, it would completely wash away any remaining doubt that you had and then all this shit with miscavige and the threats and the lawsuits 
and his wife being mysteriously not around so much of the time and people talking about how they were made to run to the point that they almost died. And then when they came back from the ER, told they had to start all over again because the hospital visit meant they fucked things up. And just like, how the fuck is anyone doing this? And they, the worst part is they charge you for all of it. <laughs> I don't get it. That I is, I think, it. that is probably the worst part. That's probably like the biggest turnoff for me. <laughs> but the thing is, is that they want like, high profile clientele right yeah, of course they don't want like you know like a christian christianity they're like we'll take your 60 cents we'll, you, you know no or like you yeah. know they'll take people off the street like you're a hobo it's like whatever come oh, yeah. find jesus man doesn't matter but like scientology that's not the kind of clientele they want right they want like upstanding members of society they want people with power they want celebrities that's oh. why they called their facility yeah. in la celebrity center my they named it that yeah. on purpose oh, per- <laughs> my, my my father was in there I swear to you, on my grandmother's, on his headstone, I swear to you, my father was in there. He he was, they were thinking about doing demolition work of some kind. And somehow somebody my dad knew called him and he got, he got to go in for a bid. It was a casual tour. Obviously they didn't show him any secrets or anything, but my father has been, I was with him on a couple occasions in places I found scary, literally scary. And my father came back from having been there. Obviously no one was allowed to go with him and described it as the strangest eeriest weirdest most unsettling place he's ever been inside of in his life like it is creepy because because you get a creepy vibe from yeah people. exactly that's what he meant because they want to appear to be very pleasant but i think sometimes they don't realize that that just makes them seem like members of a cult that's the, the like my father was very clear to say there was nothing wrong with the structure it's not that the place was run down it's just it's like being in a palace run by a bloodthirsty dictator who kills people for fun but no one wants to tell you that's what's happening you know what I mean? Right. It's like, like it's like a bossing say. Do you ever watch Avatar? The oh, cartoon, only a little bit. Where it's like, it, okay, well, like they they have like a PR person who's like has like this plastic smile on their face right. and is showing them around, but there's all these like horrific things happening behind the scenes, and they're like, "What are you talking about? Those things never happen." Exactly. <laughs> you know, I don't know what you're talking about. My wife is fine. Yeah. Like, yeah. Quick story. All right. So orientation to Scientology. When if you go into a church or a mission, which is the smaller churches, the smaller facilities. Oh, they use the term mission? Yeah. Fuck me, that's creepy. So if you go in and you're like, hey, I'm kind of interested in seeing what this is all about, they'll either give you a tour and or they'll show you a video. I don't know if they still have this video, but they went out in the 90s, they did in the 2000s. It was called Orientation of Scientology. So they take you in this room. It's like a small theater. Not like anything advanced, but they have a screen and they play this thing. It's about 30 minutes long and it's just like, Guy comes on screen and he's like, this is what Scientology facility is. This is what we do. This is what auditing is. This is what courses are. And he kind of takes you through the whole thing. And it ends with a, a very pushy, like, last-ditch, like, sales effort on the part of the video. Religion should not come with a sales pitch. When he's like, you can choose to join us. You can choose to pursue this. And then he goes, like, a little overboard. He goes, or you can choose to jump out a window. But just know that your choices have consequences. Some some shit like that. Wow. But he, he does throw suicide in there as like an option to you. If you leave this room after seeing this film and walk out and never mention Scientology again, you are perfectly free to do so. It would be stupid, but you can do it. You can also dive off a bridge or blow your brains out. That is your choice. But if you don't walk out that way, if you continue with Scientology, we will be very happy with you. And you will be very happy with you. You will have proven that you are a friend of yours. Anyway, 
I mean, is that my only alternative? I have watched this fucking thing like 20 times. Why? Because every Scientology mission or church gets a certain amount of points when they make someone watch this. So when I was going there, they would, they would make me watch it over and over. They would just repeat it so that they could get the points to compete against the other places. So it's incentivized brainwashing. This is how the big brother gets the little brother to make sure that your brainwashing regimen is constant. Exactly. Fucking wow. We will be very happy with you. Wow. God anyway. damn, what a model. I can go into more into Scientology later. I, I can see that Alan is... force you to take a field trip to that psychology is genocide museum? I've been there once, yeah. Ugh, God. It's I like heard, in Hollywood? Yeah, the one Kirstie Alley loves? Yeah. Fucking bitch. Anyway... <laughs> All right, we're talking about the last samurai. <laughs> Some of what we just said might be edited out, but it was a good conversation. I don't think so. Fuck yeah. it, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> Seriously, I really don't. Anyway, last battle, third act. Japanese legalist dies on the way out. I just yeah. wanted to say that. Yeah, they rescue Katsumoto, and but his son dies getting him. Yeah, poor dude. You know that dude was cool. He was. He was cool. I don't really understand what the the motive narrative wise was supposed to be for killing him but well there is I think a small part maybe a very minor detail but they kill him with rifles at the end he charges them with the swords and then they kill him with the rifles which they is kill him without ironic. honor no yeah. you know what Alan that's a really they do, good they point they all do just blast him you may have just I think you did I think you just nailed it that may be what they were aiming for thematically and it's an angle I've just never thought about it really does symbolize that that the, the transition or like yeah and he's this young samurai and wants to carry it on and here he is being killed by the guns that's not bad yeah it's not bad we get to see a little bit more of that though because it is of course time for the final act of the movie tom cruise has officially joined the samurai who number about 500 men and they are going to be facing the emperor's now westernized soldiers on the field of battle and they got thousands i would they said thousands. I would say 2,000 probably, right? Yeah. They definitely outnumber the samurai. I remember he specifically says regiment, but I don't know how many that means. Or how many is in a regiment? I know it's a couple thousand. Yeah, yeah something so like that. So it's something big. big. Suffice to say they are outnumbered and outgunned. Yeah. There's so, a really cool small part here where he tells him about the Battle of Thermopylae, and he yeah. references 300. Yeah, he's like... He tells him about that. Frank Miller wrote this amazing story <laughs> once upon a time. <laughs> 240 years in the future. <laughs> From what I understand, that story's been taught in tactics lessons at military academies basically since it happened. Frank Miller's 300. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. Yes, common people, they're like, you mean that, or today's people, they're that movie with Gerard Butler? Oh, no, the Zack Snyder movie, yeah. The Zack Snyder movie? Is that real? Did Xerxes really look like that? <laughs> yeah. Right. But, yeah. Is there really that point. hunchback motherfucker? Oh, absolutely. In here, because he doesn't mention, he doesn't say, well, he says it after, he says 300, but he introduces it as the Battle of Thermopylae. The Battle of Thermopylae, yeah, which yeah. is what it's really called. Yeah. This conversation, Alan, it, I guess it kind of spurs the tactics, the strategy that Nathan implements. you want to tell us about, like, his plan here? Yeah, so he knows that they can't face him face on. So... They funnel them into a narrow valley, and they have different strategies. Like, they have their bowmen, marksmen. They have the arrows. They have different groups set up. They have a way to ambush them when they get to a certain point. They have traps. They have a very strategic uh, point to this. Yeah, they got to be big brain about this shit, because 
They can't just go running at a bunch of guys with with guns while they have swords, right? No, Which, but, spoiler, that's what right. happens at the very end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I, the, one part of this that kind of bugged me detail-wise is Algren makes a point of pointing out that if they stay outside the range of the guns, then they'll force the Imperial Army soldiers to come to them, which he's right about. But then when he's baiting them, he's got one group that's relatively up front that's trying to bait the Imperial Army, and he's got them so close that they end up getting hit by the guns. And it's like, well, then what was the point? Weren't they supposed to be out of range? Like, Yeah, I guess maybe things didn't go perfectly as planned, I guess but not. mostly as planned. Right. And I, I forgot to mention this because, they, you know, when they're preparing for the battle, it's very, like, cinematic and, like... Yeah. Tom Cruise is like, he has to don the armor of the man he killed, and he has a very erotic scene with Taco where she dresses him. That's another one, man. I mean, I don't want to nitpick. This particular detail didn't super bother me, so I don't want to nitpick it too hard, but I'm I'm, I'm not certain they would have wanted him wearing that armor. It but. didn't bother me, but bringing it up, I guess it could have been hit or miss. It could have been... I wouldn't bother me if they took Could it Could have just out. been like some random armor instead yeah. of like the yeah, honored yeah. armor of that previous warrior? You know what... Perfect. Yes. That's another one of those moments or a small change of detail and I wouldn't have been bothered at all. It would have been kind of nice actually to have him meet like the village armorer and have them make something for him. And it really would have under underlined him being a, a new part of that group, I think. Just my opinion, but I don't know. Honestly, in my head, I remember a sex scene. Yeah, you know what? I thought I did too. Isn't that weird? And I'm there not is. even it's trying to... No, there's not. I'm not even trying to be perverse or funny about it. I It's probably been eight or nine years since I really sat through the whole thing, and I could have sworn I remembered a scene where the two of them slept together, and it never happened. Is this the Mandela effect? It might be. Yeah. Is yeah. this what we're... The universe is like... Even though splitting. I hate that theory, yes. Right? No, because I remember there was there a, is no Shazam, Sinbad motherfucking movie. I, but Anyone you know that what? says I was, that, I will punch in the face. Well, I, well then I guess you owe me a punch, because I have to admit, I was convinced of that until someone pointed it out to me. I thought it was him, right? <laughs> and then somebody's like, somebody asked me, do you remember the movie Shazam? And I said, yes, because I did. And they asked me who was in it, and I'm like, wasn't that Shaq? And then when they said Sinbad, and I thought about it, I'm like, oh yeah, absolutely. The moment somebody said Sinbad, my head plugged in the memory, and I'm like, yeah, you're right, it was Sinbad. But I did, I thought it was Shaq. We're, we're going to have to post this to the internet to see. Shaq must have no. done, <laughs> Shaq must have done something, TV commercials or something, where he was like in a genie outfit. I'm, there must have been some reason everyone thought God that. damn it, Steve, it was Shaq. Or the other way around. See, there you go. <laughs> so how do we explain the Sinbad, missing sex see, scene? That's what I'm saying. I still don't remember it right. I don't know about the missing sex scene, though. Maybe it was on the TV edit. But then again, well, No, would... but I'm thinking the same thing. I thought I remember that, too. It's like the Berenstein Bears, because that's not their fucking name. But it's what everyone thinks their name is, myself included. The Bernstein Bears? Yeah, it's like Berenstein. No, nah, it was the Bernstein. It was right, but it's, but it's not. <laughs> I mean, it is, but it's not. It's not, though. In real life, it isn't. That's just what everyone books. thinks. Okay, I'm going to take a step back, because I don't actually hate the Mandela effect. I just hate the Shazam. Sinbad conversation. Some people too, yeah. insist with zero evidence that there is a Sinbad movie. That, oh, see, I, no, I'm not. I'm not one of them. I won't do that. It doesn't. It, and it's funny too because Sinbad did this like fake uh, college humor or like funny or die thing. Right. So people reference that. But it's it's amazing to me that no one can produce this movie that supposedly exists. See, now that I agree with that would bother me because the moment somebody pointed it out to me, I was like, oh, you're absolutely right. I didn't persist with it. Well, I don't understand why anyone would persist with it after having it 
Just well, be because wrong. Of yeah, just technology be wrong. It's okay. You can be wrong about something. Because of technology and everything now, it'd be it'd be impossible for no one to be able to have that. Or not you tell me you can't find you it just anywhere. Look it up right now. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Anyway, yeah. Steve, this battle is um, you would think one sided on yeah. on the side of the westernized Japanese army, but it actually goes in the favor of the samurai because they have white Jesus. They do have white Jesus. Well, you know, Algren's character, I guess, does have a bit of a point. Once they're out of range of the howitzers, the only thing the foot soldiers have left are their muskets, which can only fire one shot at a time and then are, are cumbersome and time-consuming you reload. So he must understand he can't prevent these guys completely from getting shot. But if they can force the foot soldiers away from the howitzers, once they've all used up their first shot, they're all going to be distracted trying to reload, and it gives the samurai an opportunity to cut them down or to force them to try to fight with the... Shit, what do you call that? The, the blade that you attach the... The bayonet. Yeah, and, and they're not... Bayonets are functional, but they're really meant for a direct stab on a battlefield in accordance with the way Western wars are fought. They're not meant to be used like a sword and you couldn't really fight off samurai with them so they were also like a last resort you don't want yeah. to use your bayonet you want to shoot them first right exactly yeah you, 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 those guys always got told you know it's there if you, 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 by, the, you by the time the guy gets close enough you're not going to have any other choice anyway but so yeah actually that part makes kind of sense and you're right they take the opportunity to, uh, to to make use of that to cut some of these guys down and they manage to make a big enough dent that uh um, Amora gets put off and they want to start calling in more soldiers. But then it just turns into a fight with the gun, the big guns, really. Well, right before that, this all comes full circle because it's just like Algren said that the samurai's sole occupation for a thousand years was war. And it's foreshadowed in the beginning because he tells him that they're not ready. So even though Amora thinks they're and they've had, what, six months more, you know, however much more training, they're still not really ready. Because the samurai yeah. are still superior. The samurai are all about this shit. You know, they're. I don't think the prospect of going to battle like is something that concerns them. No, they're just like, all right, cool. Like, and, yeah. I'm ready. Like, let's do it. It's honorable to and die. And then, in the, like, they die. They're like, good. I, I want to die yeah. like that. Like, that's a good thing for me. That exactly. It's they're more like they shared that sort of with the Vikings and with some of the other other groups as well. Vikings actually believed they wouldn't get to go to a proper afterlife if they didn't die in battle. They yeah, no. I was talking to someone about that after I saw the Northmen. Yeah. Like, what if oh, you're just. God, what if you're just a Viking that, like, always wins? Right. Like, you, like, never are undefeated. You think the you... gods are on your side, you know? <laughs> and, like, uh, yeah, you know, and that's really one of the defining things is, you, you know, the other guys, the Imperial Armor soldiers were Japanese men, but m with the exception of some of the officers, most of them had not been samurai before. And, uh, yeah, they're just a guy holding a gun. And it, it happens... Uh, happens on the battlefield like my both my grandfathers were combat vets and i can remember hearing stories about guys that seemed fine in training and then got there and couldn't do anything um that's more poignant to the samurai because they've actually trained for all yeah that. you yeah. know and the samurai would have been at the opposite end of that where they'd been trained their whole lives to, to yeah be okay with the idea of dying in a fight yeah they're ready to go right and a lot of them do you know a lot of them get shot you know even though they take out a lot of the westernized japanese soldiers they have smaller numbers, and, you know, bullets will take you out pretty quick. It's a back-and-forth battle for a bit. It is, yeah. And Bagley finally gets killed by Nathan, Tom Cruise, which, yeah, you know... Is, that so. That's the one moment in this battle that really fucking bugged me, and that was... This is the more of Algren being superhuman. Is like, look, 
throwing a sword like that's not impossible. <laughs> it's not impossible, but it. this dude's at full throttle on horseback in the middle of an actual ongoing war surrounded by hundreds <laughs> of other people. He's got to be dozens of yards at minimum away, at bare minimum away from Do where Do samurai all. practice throwing their swords like that? No, absolutely they, not. But he can't throw it because then you I don't mean, have a sword. Yeah, it's 100%. Like, like, it's like thieves. Like, I'm sure you could, but like, they're not going to yeah. do that. See, that's, it's like, I guess as an absolute act of desperation, you could sort of try. But yeah, I mean, number one, to your <laughs> yeah. point, you do not give the fucking sword up. You mm -hmm. don't. You need it to keep yourself alive, and you don't want the other person to be able to pick it up and use it against you. Now, there were... A samurai typically, I'm not going to go into all, all the details. Samurai typically carried three blades. There were, often it was a katana, a wakizashi, which was a middle-sized sword, and a tanta, which is a knife. There are certain instances out of desperation where they might have tossed one sword as a distraction and pulled the other out. But it's not something you ever want to do. It's it's like it's like the katana's blade is stuck in something, or it got wrapped up in a kusarigama chain, and you can't get it away. You only get rid of it if you've really got no choice. So yeah, you'd never give it up. But then for him to be like a sword that's not meant to be thrown that way and has a, a three or four foot long blade on it. That has a curve. That has a curve. Yeah, and he's going to chuck it not 30 yards. Not very aerodynamic. Yeah, not very And it's way heavier at one end than at the other. There's no way he's going <laughs> to chuck it like that, hit someone that far away. Well, it's pretty cool, though. It was cool. It was cool. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was cool. <laughs> and it's nice to see Bagley get a sword in the chest. So fine. But He yeah, finally killed like, him for free. This right? is for killing Sam Wheat, motherfucker. Right? Even though what happened for 110 years. <laughs> Your ancestor. Right. You're going to be related to a banker, motherfucker. <laughs> there's a, at, the, at the end of the skirmish, there's not very many samurai left. It looks like there's about 50 of them, and they charge yeah. the last remnants of the Japanese military. And uh, at this point, there's really no hope. You can't run at these guys with guns. And plus, they got yeah. the machine guns. The howitzers. And they just, you know, they, they crank the things up and... This part is... I mean, it's a movie, but this part is particularly sad because... It is sad. You just see them get, like, massacred. And it's like... Yeah. It's good, though. It's good sad. It's, like, very a heroic moment. It's slow-mo. There's really great music. It's very cinematic in nature, yeah, right? Cinematic. The last stand of the honorable samurai against the dishonorable military. But even the military... Especially the machine guns. Yeah. But even the military people, like, respect them for making this last stand. It's like the, the man in the Iron Mask. You remember, like, when the three <laughs> musketeers get taken out and, like, the soldiers, like, pay them, like, the last respects? Well, I forget his name, but one of the, the generals, the guy with the mustache, who I think in the movie was supposed to be a former samurai. Oh, but yeah, you're he, right. He realizes how horrible it is, and he tells them all to stop. Right. Well, yeah. because they're pretty much done anyway. Yeah. And... Our main guy, Katsumoto, finally dies, and he dies his own way, right? Like, I remember him dying by getting shot in the movie. Well, but they when I watched it, it wasn't quite that, was it? They both get shot multiple times, so they're both pretty much done anyways. But this is the, the pinnacle or the final, final scene of the movie because he doesn't die from getting shot. Uh, Algren has to help him kill himself as a part of his samurai. Yeah, what's that ritual called, Steve? Seppuku. Seppuku, yeah. Yeah, and he tells Ogren that he'll live for his honor later, but Katsumoto has to die on the field. And it's, I, I understand why, this is not a, this one is not a criticism. I completely understand why they would not want to depict this out on screen, but in real life, 
it was way worse. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. It wasn't enough just to get the blade in. You had to go all the way from one side of your abdomen to the other before your head could be removed. So, and your guts would basically just come out. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the idea that a human being can force themselves through that shows you the kind of resolve these men had. Like... <laughs> Jesus. And, right. and he's doing it because that's the most honorable thing he could do. He's telling him, like, this is it. That's this is the, the honor. That shit and learning how finely made the swords were and blah, blah, blah is what really made me interested. Like, it's, it's why the weeby shit bothers me, too. I don't, it's very shallow. The anime. weeby shit? Yeah, it's like, oh, because I saw an anime with samurai in it, and now I'm, now I'm a total Japanophile. I'm like, you don't know shit about these people. Like, yeah. Steve's been to Japan, motherfucker. Right? <laughs> Steve knows. I've been there. Uh, <laughs> I've never been to Japan, Steve, but I knew yeah. a family there. We but should go. We should all go. I think every last samurai to the man is killed, except one. Except the last samurai. <laughs> the last the guy's samurai. guy's favorite savior. Lives. <laughs> now, here is where the title can create some confusion. Yeah, I mean, I think it was sort of implied anyway, and then especially now. <laughs> right. Uh, the last one that lives is Tom Cruise, Nathan, who is saved by the power of being white. If he wanted real redemption, he should have died. And I'm not saying that to be shitty. It's he did not get like, shot, like, several times. He did, he did. Yeah. And, I, but I, and I'm not even trying to be, like, super shitty. It's like, oh, I hate that character. Like, it just, it's like, I would have felt a little better about giving him the redemption if he died in the end. Like, and I know they do sort of underline that with a little bit of dialogue where Algren tells him you don't necessarily need to die. And he's like, no, this is my way and you need to let me have it. But I don't know. He's too good to die. He's way better than the rest of them. Yeah, I mean, well, he's nicer than some of the other pricks. No, I mean, Algren, Nathan, is he's oh. just a better samurai. Oh, well, clearly. Who yeah. lived? Who survived the battle? Well, but I'll flip that up on you because according to the samurai, it should be the opposite. He did... Katsumoto died, so he got the most honor. Algren didn't get honor from living, so it's almost like they switched it up on him. So he doesn't. He's have not better honor. for living, he, you know. See, but but like, let's 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 died. be honest with ourselves. What's better, to be alive or dead? Well, well that's the question. If you ask the samurai, they'll tell you they'll tell you to die. But real person will be like, but I want to live. What's interesting about that's that psychology, point. and I'm I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just commenting on the fact that it exists. It's like to, I'm okay with saying it. The, the idea you want to live. The idea that 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 living with the shame of it is so awful that I'd rather not be alive. It's such a very, and again, not a knock, not a criticism, but it's just, just a very Japanese way of looking at it. Even. I mean, not to the same extreme. Obviously, people aren't killing themselves the same way. But, like, even now, Japanese culture, if you underperform, if oh, you don't meet with honor. par, you know, it's a very difficult thing for, for them to deal with because they've been raised in a culture that says average is the worst you can possibly be. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I should rephrase that. Average is the lowest to which it is acceptable to be. You know, anything even below that is really just completely unacceptable. Well, everyone knows that that's the meme across all Asian cultures with Asian parents that you're not yeah. a doctor, you're not a musician or whatever. Well, I can speak from some degree of experience here. It's one, one of the reasons I think Jewish men often go after Asian women because it's a shared thing between both groups. It's something they understand about it. Ah, we've unlocked the secret of why well, Jewish guys like Asian women. Well, you know what? I mean, I'll, my opinion, maybe I don't want to speak for anyone else, but I, I, for me, it was never that. But it, it was, it's this weird thing where like you want something different, but you want it to still be close enough to what you're familiar with that it's not totally foreign. And you meet this other person who's totally different in so many ways and their background is so different from yours in so many ways, but at the same time, 
there's this shared like work your ass off theme and if your grades are bad it's no good and like you can be a doctor or you can be a musician but like almost anything else isn't okay and like I don't know I think that overlap it, it's weird it's different but comfortable it's like trying I don't know it's like trying a hamburger you've never had before like it's new but you know what a hamburger is you know <laughs> like there's a really funny <laughs> scene in Family Guy in the Korea episode where they go to Korea yeah. it's Korea but they, they watch a Korean soap opera and they start arguing about it and Joe says uh, something about one of the main characters being dishonorable because he brought a personal item to work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's like, he's completely dishonorable because he brought a personal item from home to work. Right. <laughs> God, yeah. Some of it's pretty interesting. But, yeah. Well, the movie wraps up with Nathan going to visit the emperor and he presents to him Katsumoto's sword. And this is kind of like a pivotal moment, I guess, in the, uh, in the government in terms of like what the emperor does with leading the country, right, Steve? Yeah, I mean, being confronted with the sword and finally seeing what's going on, I guess, is what makes him decide to tell his advisors, I'm not going to do what you tell me anymore. Well, it only like, takes all the samurai dying before yeah. he realizes it. <laughs> and that's one of my other criticisms. <laughs> Maybe the samurai like, ain't so bad after all. Why don't right? you get him over here? Uh, oh, I'm, I'm the last one. <laughs> yeah, actually, I am the last one, even though that's not what the title's supposed to mean, <laughs> but I'm the last one. Um, they were the last ones collectively, right? but now I'm the last one singularly. And that, it's another thing. is like, why? Why did they all have to die for you to get to this conclusion? I mean, I get it. It's a thematic choice, right? But still. Tell me how he died. I'll tell you how he lived. Steve, will you tell me how he died? I will tell you how he lived. <laughs> Is that the stupidest fucking line in it the history? It's a pretty terrible I like, line. I like that I'm pretty line. sure he already understands how awesome. he lived. <laughs> what? Like, he doesn't need you to tell him that. He knows how he lived better than you. Yeah, exactly. Like, he's <laughs> actually lived in this country his whole life. He knows how things worked before you got here. He should have, like, the scene should have continued. Be like, no, I, I know yeah. how he lived. I, I want to know, like, how he, he actually died, though. You, you like, just fast forward, like, the last 10 minutes. That'd be good. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I got it totally different from you guys then. I mean, I didn't think you'd actually tell him, but it's like mostly a, a symbolism thing. You know, yeah, you I don't want to know. probably how he, right from an intent know. perspective. Like, yeah. I'm going to tell you what kind of man he was. But Rather I, than and, how he died. But He's they, not actually going to tell him. But they make it tell you a point of telling you a few times that he'd been one of the emperor's soldiers and closest advisors. He's been on the emperor's council for years. Like, he gets it. He was a man of honor. I know. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah. And he, I chose to ignore him anyway. He was and then born he died in, in 1841. I know. Yeah, right? Okay, like, uh, let's see. He he liked to wear uh, silk when he, was, when he slept. Otherwise, fun, Funny thing, he was Buddhist and carried a sword. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know, motherfucker. Right. Tell me so how he, he died. died. <laughs> <laughs> Which gun killed him? Jesus. There's that one. Right? Oh, okay. This one here. Great, you can go home now. And he does. He goes home, Steve, to the... To the village. To the true home. Where almost all of the adult men are dead. But he's... And he's got, like, the hottest... He's got the hottest one. Hottest and, Japanese and, and woman. And harem of all the others. In all the country anyway. Like... Right? <laughs> her name, Taka, she... Her actual name in IMDb is Koyuki. Koyuki. So she just has a one name. She's like a share. Oh, interesting. Or she yeah. goes by the one. Yeah. 
She's like a the Japanese share. Japanese share. Well, wow, she's a lot more interesting than share. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he he goes home and it, you know presumably he lives out the rest of his days there. Although the the narrator says you know no one knows what ever happened to him. We still kind of see what happened. I like that ending. Some I like how they left it open so like bad. that. They didn't overplay. What did you think was left open? Because I I don't so think the it rest was left the rest open of his all. life. Like I said, they they what he would. Wait, he raised some kids. He, who knows? I mean, who knows? I, I think we know though. I I think think we can guess substantially. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I don't think he did anything of significance. Is the point right? Like he just, he just kind of like settled down. Well, he found his, he found his peace then. He did. He He found the Xenu inside him. (laughs) We should all be so lucky (laughs) to find such peace. I think he says that at the end. He says that he found peace that. Many of us seek, but few find. No, no, no. Somebody brought some fucking pea pods out to the table. He was saying he found peas. He found peas. <laughs> he finally found his I peas. I found the peas in a bowl on the table. <laughs> okay. Uh, final thoughts. Let's do some final thoughts. Steve, before we get into ratings, do you have anything else of note to mention about this? Since we're headed into ratings, I will mention... I don't want you to get overexcited when I say this, Alan, because there's going to be a big <laughs> caveat afterward. All right. The critical response in Japan, to some degree at least, was actually more positive than the American response was. Suck it. Well, sort of. But yeah, here, but uh, this one one particular critic in Japan of note, Tomomi Katsuda, he did think that it was a vast... This was really what he said. He thought it was a vast improvement over previous American attempts to portray Japan. He did think that it looked like the filmmakers had done a lot of research and it was pretty good with their history, even though a lot of it was made up. He did say that they did well with dialogue coaches um, and having everyone speak properly. Um, but he did find fault with the movie's idealistic storybook portrayal of the samurai. There was also another critic, Motoko Rich, a uh, Japanese-American guy, actually. He pointed out that Particularly among Asian Americans and Japanese, there's a lot of debate about whether the film and others like it were racist, naive, or well-intentioned, inaccurate, or maybe all of the above. So I think that this does underline that among a large percentage of the American or the Asian community, including here in America, they're bringing up the same points we were. That that they may not have all been outwardly offended by it, but there's definitely an ongoing discussion, as pointed out by an Asian critic, a Japanese critic. That this, all of this stuff is being discussed. This is not one of those movies where Asian people are just like, oh yeah, it's all great, it's fine. Todd McCarthy, a film critic for Variety, wrote that the movie was clearly enamored with the culture it examines, but that the yarn is disappointingly content to recycle familiar attitudes about the nobility of ancient cultures, which I would agree with, um, as well as Western despoilment of them and liberal historical guilt, which I would agree with. Um... <laughs> Liberal guilt. Right. White tears <laughs> killed the Indian. In 2014, this is my last one about critics, but in 2014, um, Kelly Goff from the Daily Beast wrote an article about it, describing it as having a, sa- a savior narrative. It was actually analyzed as one of several films that she felt exemplified having a savior narrative, um, which she described as a cinematic trope studied in sociology for which The Last Samurai has been analyzed. And uh, actually, this is my actual last one. David Sirota from Salon 
described it as yet another film just presenting the white Union Army official as personally embodying the North Civil War effort to liberate people of color, which I thought was pretty, mm. pretty apt. So, like, you know, mm. I'm sorry that I'm so critical of this film, but clearly, clearly there's a large community out there that feels the way it was. And Steve has handpicked their reviews. <laughs> well, these are, and you know what, though? These are just the ones that were mentioned, like, on Wikipedia and IMDb. I didn't have to go deep diving for reviews to find this. This is, like, the easiest review material. It's it's presented there on the sites people would be going to anyway. So, I, you know, when you don't even have to dig to get to that, I think that says something. The you know only, what's a word that I hate that might be relevant to this conversation is problematic. Yeah, me too. I hate that word because to me it just seems like something Everything pussy nowadays. Say. Exactly. <laughs> I agree with both of you about that. Everything's problematic and it's a pussy term. Like, just kill yourself. Life's a problem. But, right? But if used appropriately, it might be a word to use when describing the problems with this movie. Yeah, the problem with the term problematic is that it could be a good term, mm-hmm. but it's used in a really stupid way a lot of the time. But yeah, no, the only other couple of things I mentioned really quick, this was the 100th movie Hans Zimmer scored, uh, which I think is kind of interesting. Great score. Great score. It's a very good score. And also, um, Ken Watanabe had been acting since 1982, but had done almost nothing in English before this. This is really the film... It's weird as it is to think about that introduced him to a lot of Western audiences. And in fact, he played 90% of his career leading up to this was uh, parts, parts playing samurai. Well, he does have a heavy accent, so yeah. you can tell. Right? Yeah. It's true. And then a couple years later, he almost he kind of played Ra's al Ghul? Kind oh, of? Oh, yes, yeah, sort of. Or, or Ra's al Ghul-ish stand-in. He was an Inception. He was the stand-in. Inception. Yeah. They keep doing that, like the Mandarin who isn't the Mandarin. Like, just stop it. Just do the character. <laughs> Like, fuck, man. Although Ben Kingsley was really good in that movie. You haven't I seen like Shang-Chi yet, have you? No, no, I haven't seen Shang-Chi yet. Dude, I do want to watch that. Trust me. That one, I wasn't even avoiding on purpose. I just didn't didn't get to it. Yeah. Alan, any final thoughts before ratings? I don't know. Um, I definitely see all the things you guys brought up, but I think I took more maybe, I don't know if innocent is the right word. But I took maybe a more innocent view on a lot of this. Yeah, because Alan has nuance, Steve. <laughs> I get what you guys are I, saying, okay. but I never really saw it like that. You know, if you, if you think about it and split hairs and analyze it, okay. But I took more of the broader points and the more, I guess, generic, wider points. I find points it insulting you think saying. I have to pick hairs to come to these conclusions. <laughs> Alan's a huge racist. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? I'm just kidding. <laughs> so I love the movie. I thought it was great. Right, right on. Now, real quick, before we go into ratings, Steve, could you do an anime character voice for me? I, I don't... How? I don't know how to... I really... <laughs> I don't even know... How do I do that? What would an anime character even sound? I mean, like, if you're doing the, like, the really cliche American dub, where they always talk like everything's a question, they're always very excited, and they always mm-hmm. have a high-pitched voice, blah, blah, blah. There's always some kid that talks that way in animes. I'm in the middle of a race, Trixie. Don't talk to me now. Can't you wait till it's over? Steve, listen to me. Eloise's brother half has got to win. Please let him. Why should I let him win? I'm out to win myself. Now sign off and don't bother me. Now do like a like a Japanese. Do you like, want me to impersonate a Japanese person? I'm not a, fucking a doing Japanese that. Japanese anime character, a villain. A villain. They always say something sinister oh, and then they laugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's true. They always <laughs> have some line like, uh, oh, God. You won't think like that once I have the gemstone. (laughs) 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 It's something ridiculous. The ultimate power is finally now mine. Exactly, that's even better. Now that I have the sword, I have the ultimate power in my hands. (laughs) I will finally beat you. (laughs) 
<laughs> your kung chi is no match for this weapon. That really sounds more like the way American producers would dub Chinese kung fu movies in the 70s, but yeah, still. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> uh, I was more thinking, like, try to say something in Japanese, because, like, the villain, like, oh, the yeah. Japanese version's always, like, more sinister than goofy. They'll be like, <laughs> Yeah, well, it's always the tone. Like, if you, you can ask someone, what is this in Japanese, but if you say it right, it comes out sounding like, <laughs> and it just, it's like, you know, I, all I'm asking is what that thing is, but it sounds like it's evil. Like, yeah. that's, that's the way the villains talk. Yeah, about. right? Well, it's the same thing with, with like, German. You know? yeah. yeah, German, like too. Angry. It's another one. That's German's a, a nasty sounding language. <laughs> it doesn't matter what you're talking about. Like, I also like the Dragon Ball Z characters like Vegeta and Goku, especially Vegeta. They always say the same thing. They either say, that can't be... Or that's impossible. Yeah, that's impossible. He dodged my attack. That's <laughs> impossible. <laughs> How is he still alive? It can't be. <laughs> God, it's so good. And you... like, you know, they're always like bent over a little bit, like with their fists clenched, like right? looking at the floor struggling. <laughs> I'm stronger to... than Kakarot. I gotta try to get you to watch some Fist of the North Star. You are gonna love this shit. All right, I'm in. If you do uh. a podcast on Cop and a Half. Uh, you know what? I had some other ideas about what I want to trade you for that. Okay. So we'll discuss. We'll talk, right. Yeah. Let's get into ratings. Alan, on any rating scale you want, what are you going to give The Last Samurai? A solid A. All right. A solid A from Alan. I love this movie. Everything you guys said, okay. The, I would give it almost a perfect movie. If for the reasons we described, there was definitely confusion about who is the last samurai. They could have made that better, not be Tom Cruise. And there are inaccuracies about the fighting, you know, when he takes on like seven samurai. But the layers and the different themes and the story and the cinematic and the movie, I think it was a really good movie. Okay. Very and I appreciated good. all the, the themes about it. And there's a lot of important things out of there about you know, change in history and not forgetting. At the end, he says, not forgetting where you came from. There's a lot of deep themes in this movie. Thank you. I'm going to go next. I'm going to give this six out of 10 hot, single Japanese women in your area. (laughs) Village Japanese milfs in your neighborhood. (laughs) Taka does not look bad in this movie. God damn, no, she does not. Normally, we spend a lot more time talking about attractive women in the movies than we do. Right. <laughs> this time, we really glad. We, we, I was proud of us, actually. We really like just like move past. I actually it. respect her, so yeah. I don't be too nasty about it. Because this is a man's movie about honor, <laughs> no women. Yeah. <laughs> this is about Bushido. This movie is good, but there's a there's a big problem with this movie. And that is, for me at least, the recycled storyline. Like, this is just a story that just will continue throughout history, I think. I think we'll see this story told over and over forever. Yeah. And that that's what I, my main complaint about what Avatar was, James Cameron's Avatar. I was like, this isn't a new story. And I think story is a big, important part of the movie for me. Some people are more into, you know, the technical stuff. Maybe some people like go they go to a movie for special effects or just spectacle in general. Michael Bay fans. Exactly. People <laughs> that like Michael Bay. There are people that like Michael it's Bay true. Transformers movies. It's difficult to believe, but it's true. And those movies to me lack in story. They do. And so th- I think the biggest downside for this movie is story, but if I can set that aside, I think it's well executed 
and it achieves everything on a technical level. So like the movie looks good and it sounds good and they're in good environments and you know, I don't see bad use of CGI and the the battle scenes look correct and good and like I can follow them along or I can follow along with them well. Like I'm able to appreciate everything on a technical level pretty much. The acting is good, especially from Ken Watanabe. I really like that dude a lot. I think it's an overall pretty good movie aside from story problems. And then if I'm going to go even deeper, maybe personal problems. I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but I am Japanese American after all. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I just don't really appreciate cultural appropriation in this way. Is it problematic? (laughs) Anyway, Steve, you're up next. Hit it. Um, you know what? I'm going to pretty much ape you. I'm going to give this movie six out of ten Thetans. And, uh... (laughs) I, I think there's a lot about the movie that is, is actually good. And I pretty much agree with what you touched on. The production value is good. The costuming's nice. They made the sets in New Zealand look like Japan. The acting is generally good. No real complaints there. The biggest problem with this movie, basically what you pointed out, it, the story's kind of shallow and thin. It, it, it relies on tropes that have been touched on a million times before. There are other stories like James Clavell's book Shogun or a movie from the late 80s called Black Rain that do this in a way, way better way, in my opinion. I I don't think that the appropriation or the white savior stuff can be brushed under the rug. I I don't think it really matters whether or not it didn't bother everyone. It's it's there. And obviously, Asian-American people and film critics and analysts recognized it as being there. It's It's not something that anybody just pulled out of their butt and to it's use, it's not a reach, right? No, to, it's not a reach. Right. No, you yeah. know, and and again, I'm not accusing these people of intentionally being overtly racist. I don't think they tried to make a movie that depicted Japanese people in a terrible light on purpose. I don't think it depicts them in a terrible light at all. But I, yeah, I do, I do think it relies on those tropes, and I won't ruin the movie for anyone who's interested to watch it. But even though it's a little trope being goofy itself, you look at Black Rain. They do, I think, a better job of emphasizing that the, the white characters flawed all the way to the end it's always about the struggle to find redemption in in the face of whether or not you can really get it rather than about this guy suddenly becoming a hero in some new situation i don't know it was different for me but but yeah yeah i think pretty much otherwise six at six out of ten is the best i can do for this one it's not a it's it could have been a much better movie for me but no there's one more point i think you both brought up that i didn't think about but there's no there's no corny lines in the movie, or there's no scene where the acting's like cringe, for lack of a better word. No, I never the acting felt, is good. I never Some felt of the like lines awkward, are questionable. You know? okay. Well, I think only the one line is questionable, I think. I'll tell you how he lived. Okay. Yeah. That's the only one that's questionable to me. That, but, but that's what I mean. Throughout the movie, you never see like awkward acting or right. corny. Yeah, no, I really like the Japanese actors in this movie. They like, were really good. Yeah. They and were one, really good. One more mm. question for you, Corey, is your one of your problems you said was the same recycled story. But my question is, I get what you're saying because you're right. That story's been told and you're, you actually have a point where you're saying it'll continue to be told. But you see that uh, as a negative, which I get. But I would almost see that maybe as a positive or that's my question because... If it's a story that's been told so much and continues to be told, there has to be some value there. It has to resonate or people must like that story. Right. I think it's, and Steve might disagree, but I think it's easy to choose that story. I think it kind of is also. Also, there's, uh, there's some really interesting 
market research conducted by the studios over the decades in regards to what kinds of movies, as with anything, this gets reduced to an algorithm. What what kinds of movies people will show right. up with and <laughs> Algae Rhythm and Space Jam Two. Right. Oh my God, that's another name. Alan just said yesterday that he wants to start a band called Algae, spelled A L G A E. But that would also be perfect for you. <laughs> that's such good timing. But um. Uh, Algae rhythm. That's a character in Space Jam 2. It's John Cheadle. Oh, that's he's, right. He's the computer algorithm. It's awful. Anyway, go on. But, uh, um, wait, what were we just talking about? Now said, Corey said the story was easy. Oh, yeah. I, I think that it, like one of the things they've noticed is that um, stories about soldiers do exceptionally well in the United States. When the, sol- when the main character is a soldier, he, at least here in the U.S., I don't know if the same stat applies as well elsewhere, but it, it's almost a guarantee of extra income. People will go see it even if it's bad. And I don't know why because I haven't looked well, at the actual breakdown of the analysis, but I know that like they've, they're they doing this math, so to speak, on such a finite level. They've even examined how the profession of the main character affects the response at the box office. And Soldier specifically tends to rank really high. So yeah, I mean, it's it's easy to go for the redemption angle you make the main character a soldier. It's easy to give a soldier a reason for redemption. He did bad things in the past as a soldier. So, yeah, I mean, I also remember learning at one point in a in an ancient literature course that if you go back far enough, there's really only something like seven narratives. Yeah, and every story I heard since something then. like that, yeah. Right, so, it, you know, to, in fairness, I guess, there's only so many different variations to choose from, but you're right, and it does get used a lot, yeah. Which one of those seven narratives is fucking fear and loathing in las vegas or or gummo or like some gummo god isn't gummo a trip yeah fuck what a movie god damn brazil i I love brazil brazil is surrealist fantasy for sure that's one of my favorite movies i get why other people might not click with it but man i love that film a lot anyway we're about to wrap up but since it's a steve Corey and Alan episode. I gotta ask the question, guys. And this question has a sponsor, Josh from Spoilers. Shout out to you, my good friend. Who? Tom Christ. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's an easy answer. <laughs> like Tom Zenu Christ. That is correct. This yeah. one, I feel like that. That's easy for this one. <laughs> it would have been unfair for me to. He was even resurrected in the end. I mean, come on. And he had long hair and a beard. I was disagreeing with you guys, but that's an easy one still. <laughs> I didn't even have to ask the question. So people that haven't listened to old episodes don't even know what the question is. So that's cool. I'm going to leave it at that. Yeah, leave it at that. You don't need to know. The answer is Tom Christ. <laughs> you can you can go backwards from that and figure out the question. Right. <laughs> All right. So. If you, the listeners, want to help us out, I ask that you leave us a positive rating and written review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to talk to us, you can message us on Instagram, Big Dumb Movie Podcast. Our YouTube channel is Big Dumb Movie. Give our videos a thumbs up. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Even if you don't listen to us there, go there and give us a thumbs up. I think that's about it. The email, ah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, we'll leave it at that. Any final words, Alan? Love the movie. <laughs> That's <it>. obviously. <laughs> Thank you, Alan, for making an appearance. I really liked your brother. He was cool. Um, so, you know, I'm glad that you are here now and you're using his name in honor of him. That's a really nice thing to do. It's yeah. just like the movie Beer Fest. 
I think I'll continue to do that, barring <laughs> Let's hope this else. is the only thing I ever participate in, other than maybe a drinking contest that is anything like the movie Beer Fest. <laughs> you know what, though? City Slickers, too. The, in City Slickers, the guy died, and then in the second one... Oh, it wasn't Curly. It was Curly's brother. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> I forgot. We've got Jack Plants. It's funny. <laughs> All right. Anyway, that's it. Thank you for listening. We love you. Good night. Good night. See ya. I'm gonna pee my pants. Hey, go ahead, man. Oh my god. No, go pee your pants, I mean. Right? <laughs> oh. Well, then I'm doing it on your couch. <laughs> what does katana mean? It means Japanese sword.